0: Welcome to episode one hundred and twelve of the Galen Trombley Show, and um, I just I just told my guest this, but I'm very excited to have this guest on. I think um, I, I think if I had to poll all my friends that I've said who I wanted on this podcast, and now we're episode one hundred and twelve, you've been on my like. Top guest list, I think, from almost the very beginning, and I think we probably just had to get the courage to ask you, and you, you were very accepting of of coming on. But
1: well, I'm just happy my agent was able to work out the fee with it, you.
0: It was it was great. Um, they they didn't ask for too much, and and you know you guys were pretty fair in the negotiation, <sighs> so um, I was happy. But um, Mr. Gary Douglas, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. And um, like I said, this is um, I, I was telling people like, I don't think I've ever said more than a couple words to Gary in my life, but I, it's, you're always someone that um we just came in my, my dad just left but
1: well they've been they've been a few words but they've been good ones <laughs> they're,
0: they're usually good they're nice words I think I did offer you a t-shirt once and you said no and then I said I would try to get a suit made for, with, a, with a nice <laughs> green suit and uh, which would be perfect for the uh the, the Irish person of the year breakfast um but the which I hope maybe that won't happen this year but that's always one of my favorite events just because I think it's a good time at the chamber but
1: it is going to happen That just won't be breakfast Oh, well, that's fine. But there will be a virtual event. Oh,
0: then I'm I'm all in. So there we go. We got some knowledge drops already. So we, um, for people that don't know you, Gary. Um, I, again, I've watched you since I was a kid and growing up. You're always you know in the paper, so you're kind of a, a figure that people I think have, will, if they don't know your name or know you personally, will probably recognize you. You, you a lot of times I, I guess on the front page of the paper. You may not be the front guy, but you're usually right off to the side of the podium. Um, but I've watched. You many, many years, and then, as I got into the business field and started to really kind of understand more of the um the intricacies of the area and really diving into more of the chamber the last few years and being more involved, really seeing you know what the chamber does and knowing more people at the chamber and gone through you know north country connections a couple of years and really and have a relationship with a lot of people at the chamber um you know from afar, I'm always very. I'm a very pro North country, pro Adirondack coast kind of guy. So I look at someone like you that I figure I, I kind of feel is like the, the general leading us into the, into uh, the battle um, and been doing it for many, many years in for, charge
1: of the light brigade. Hopefully. Uh, what, I mean, play,
0: playing the drums, I don't, whatever you want to call it. I've always found that you're just a very uh, you know, forward thinking leader of this area. And I've heard from many people that have, have, have confirmed that. So um, so people that do not know you give us just a little kind of a elevator pitch on who you are, what you do now.
1: Sure. My family roots are very deep in the North Country. On the Douglas side, uh, I go back to Major Asa Douglas, who was with the Green Mountain Boys in the seizure of Fort Ticonderoga. My Douglas family has been here uh, ever since. And on the uh, the Heron side, my mother's side, uh, my roots are in Danamora. Uh, some folks locally will know if you drive up through Danamora, up Danamora Mountain, you're going up to Chazy Lake. If you look halfway up the mountain to the left-hand side, You'll see Hugh Heron Road. That was the family farm. Hugh Heron was my grandfather. Oh, uh, okay. so he was a conservation officer for 48 years in the Adirondacks. So very deep roots here. Uh, my mother and father moved away downstate to the Albany area, so I kind of grew up there but was always strongly connected. Uh, if I were to describe what I am uh, from an early, uh, an early stage in my life, uh, I, I'm a political strategist. I was always very natural about it in terms of thinking about strategies. I ran my first... Uh, campaign when I was 15, and we won. Um, I uh, began professional political staff work uh, in uh, 1972. I worked in the New York State Legislature for a long-gone state senator, and actually uh, this will age me for folks who know the Legislative Office Building in Albany and have ever been down there lobbying or whatever. I worked in the State Senate, and we moved into the brand-new Legislative Office Building. <laughs> uh, oh, wow, okay. uh, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> Um, in uh, 1978, I went to work on a campaign of a friend, Jerry Solomon. He was a state assemblyman at the time, ran for Congress against uh, the late Ned Pattison in the congressional district just to the south of here. Jerry was from Glens Falls. We won. I went to work uh, for him as his executive assistant for the next 14 years, which I sometimes describe as uh, those 14 years as 12 of the happiest working years of my life. Uh, I loved the boss, but I stayed too long. It was easy out of loyalty, particularly in staff work, to just kind of keep going and keep doing what you're doing for the boss and not realize how many years you've been there. Fourteen years is an incredibly long time in the world of of political staff work for a a single member. Um, But it was a great period, but I decided what I wanted to do was, uh, was to run the shop. But I never, and I still have no interest in elective politics myself, I always loved being a political staff person, being a backroom boy, uh, being part of making things happen in the in the background uh, and let the others be out front, and I respect those who are willing to take the brickbats and be out front. Uh, so I wasn't interested in that, but I wanted to do something that my command of government affairs projects, I was in charge of projects in his huge district. We made his district the most federally funded district in the state of New York. Um, how to, to uh, fashion... Uh, Mutually valuable partnerships and relationships and strategies around issues and things. I was I was good at that What could I do that I could use that? uh, but be the one that runs the shop rather than continuing in political staff work and uh, We had a couple It was a huge district We had just a couple of chambers of commerce that we worked with a lot in the congressional office that showed me what a what a chamber of commerce could be potentially and how such an organization could be something I could have fun running Uh, One of those with the Sardisville County Chamber with Joe Dalton for many years, uh, which was a a very strong, very proactive strategic chamber. And so I went to a friend in Washington, Billy Mitchell at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and told him, you know, gee, Billy, I'm thinking this is something I'd like to do uh, somewhere in New York or New England. And I have to believe in fate because he literally opened his top left hand drawer of his desk. He pulled out a piece of paper and he said, we just had an announcement from up there. It's from Plattsburgh, New York. I said, I'm from Plattsburgh, New York. So I only applied to one. Uh, Your father was part of the group that hired me, and uh, those that hired me have been living it down ever since, but we're 29 years later. Um, It's been a blast. Uh, I'll do another 29 years, uh, God willing, as long as it keeps being fun and they're keeping new projects and challenges to work on. So
0: you said uh, December of 1992 was when you went in? So... um, I mean, is, is that something – I mean, I was going to get that towards, I guess, later in the uh, – in, in, towards the end. But, um, I mean, this is something that you still continue to love to do, right? I mean, this is not – I always always look at having done it for so many years. Do you just – at a point where you're like – I mean, it seems like you just like working. You, I mean, in a good way. Like you like – you know, Oh, I do. You like the process. You like the, the day in, the, the grind. The strategist
1: of, in me loves having projects, issues, goals – that I can bring a strategy to mm-hmm. and facilitate and and move things along, and have an outcome, um, and that's what the, the you know that the, that's what makes my juices flow. And then the chamber that we have fashioned here allows me to do that all the time. Now there have been times along the way where I was personally involved in something that that I I was kind of getting tired of, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a great staff, and I'm able at at key times to pass something off for somebody else while I take on something. You know, something a little new and different to keep it fresh so there's always uh, I mean right now it's a pandemic frankly yeah you know it's it's tragic but it has given given me in the chamber a challenge that requires strategy and fortitude and planning and execution um, that that uh, that we're focusing on right now so it isn't always some positive project it's how to deal with something closure of an air Force base uh, uh, you you name it I love tackling those things and I feel very confident when I do which doesn't mean i'm always right and it doesn't mean uh, I don't uh, get things wrong sometimes, but uh that doesn't bring me down i i I like to attack things strongly and confidently
0: are you um are you someone that when you make a decision you're very decisive and you believe in that decision I like
1: making decisions I have no problem and and but you're, if you're you we've got one, a room, if you got a room full of people and they they got angst over making a decision I'm happy to to, to suggest shot. well i here's here's the decision
0: so and the, well, the one thing that I've tried to figure out as I've gotten, I try to make decisions. And you have
1: to do that, frankly, in politics. I mean, that's, yeah. that's where that kind of comes from is you can't, oh, well, let's go think about this for a month and we'll decide how we're going to respond. No, you got to make quick decisions.
0: So, so yes. So my my thing is the idea that Cause I've been on boards and stuff, and they they discuss, and all of a sudden it's like, well, let's table it to the next meeting. I'm like, well, all we're doing is procrastinating a month that we probably could make a decision in the next twenty minutes if we really just like got down, got down to it. Um, I'm not going-
1: not to decide is to decide. There you go. Yeah,
0: I guess yeah, not to decide is to decide. Okay, yeah. So if you um you buckled me on that one, Gary. I had to think about <laughs> that one. So the but the. uh yeah, the idea that if, if you can make a decision, I'd rather just make a decision, live with it. Because I'm a very gut instinct kind of guy. Like if I my gut tells me one way, I you know I, I have logic and stuff, but a lot of times if I just feel it's the right decision, I I just make it and I I'm affirmative in that decision. With the idea that I don't want to second guess myself or I'm, I'm in real estate a buyer remorse kind of thing. No. I'm not. I'm just like I'm going all in 100 percent on that decision. It might be right, it might be wrong, but I can recalibrate. Although later on. good
1: strategic e- execution, which I think I'm generally pretty good at. Um, isn't, uh, isn't stubbornness Well, you made a decision and you're going to, you, you've decided this is how you're going to get to that end game, but you have to be flexible when things happen. So you're able to shift to plan B or plan C or take a step back and take a different path. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of, that's part of, of good strategic uh, thinking. And that's, and that's, again, we all have to kind of know what we're good at and find that lane. That's what I'm pretty good at, and I'm very confident about doing. There are other things I'm not so good at, but I've developed a great team at the chamber. There are 11 of us who can do the other facets of everything. We've got an extraordinary skill set at the North Country Chamber of People that uh, that uh, can all do what they're best at in attacking things.
0: So you're, you're, I would say, self-aware, and um, would you say self-aware and little ego? Because I think when you when you talk about self-aware, knowing your strategies, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, yeah, it's and then- funny.
1: People, a lot of people would think, "Oh, you know, he must he must have a big ego." I really don't. I I hate being complimented. Uh, I I don't I don't. I I, I, I just the, the satisfaction is the work. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I don't need to hear or anything. I don't need certificates or plaques. I, I totally despise that sort of thing. I don't accept those sorts of things. I don't think they're appropriate. I'm the hired help. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and that's the way I never let myself think otherwise. And the, the joy and the satisfaction is in what we just accomplished. By the way, uh, by the time you want to say something to me, I'm on to the next thing anyways, and I don't want to talk about that anymore. Yeah.
0: I- <laughs> I, I kind of, yeah. It's I, a,
1: it's about the work and it's about, it's about the achievement of goals along the way.
0: It's, it was the process of everything. And like you said, there, there's a reason why you still, I think if, if you have an end game in anything that you do and my, my business goals and stuff that I want to accomplish, like when I get to that level, I'm already by that point, I'm already a couple of years thinking about the next step anyways, knowing I still have to hit that level, but I'm already strategizing. Like you said, planning where's my next five to 10 years that I'm working towards. Cause to me, same thing. I I, I got like I try to sit there and like look back and see how far I've come. But again, I'm so like blinders on, focused as like I come in every day. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to accomplish, and I'm going to keep doing those little steps to go from where I, where we are to where I want to go. And again, sometimes it's hard to look back. I mean, are you good at looking back over a stretch of time? Because again, now you're talking from the chamber from ninety, basically beginning of ninety three on. Like do you look back a lot or are you just like a very focused like you said I'm on to the next thing on to the usually next thing. usually on
1: to the next thing. I'm not uh, big on nostalgia. I've never been back to my high school for example. I've never been back from my college. I don't I don't do that. It's mm-hmm. it's just not I have no interest in, in kind of what was or no, no, no nostalgia about it. And I think I, I don't think I you you carry your experience with you. Mm-hmm. I think that experience ideally becomes part of what you might call your instincts. Mhm that's built in, it's cooked in. So you don't even have to consciously think of it. It just, it collectively is building up your instinctive reaction to things come from your experience. Uh, but again, you don't have to kind of sit back and reminisce. I'm not big on reminiscing.
0: So are you more, you're more, I say future planning, but like, are you a history guy at all? Do you like, like, do you like learning about history or reading about history?
1: Uh, I did for many years. I've now become just more of an execution person. I don't, uh, again, I don't, I don't dwell on some of the things that used to interest me more. Okay, because
0: I, I was thinking from kind of like a, uh, a political strategist, political science kind of background It's very a lot of history and a lot of you know, um, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of research from the past because you're obviously learning from it. But going forward, do you? What's your level of involvement of like really tapping into what f- the future holds? Like, are you someone that does a lot of strategy or does a lot of uh, research on? Because again, Plattsburgh for the most part. I, at least in my experience with real estate, we always follow the major cities. We're about a decade behind the real major cities and maybe, maybe a little bit less, five to 10 years. So I try to focus a lot on what I see in bigger metropolitan areas, knowing that we're bringing those ideas here.
1: Well, our, our work at the chamber and therefore my work is largely and 90% consistently within a strategic framework that was established 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's not kind of winging it from thing to thing there is a there is a framework that 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 uh, uh, defines what we're doing what we emphasize you know except when you get hit by something like a pandemic you've got things that happen you need to respond to but overall in an overarching kind of way it, uh, it it's centered around the closure of Plattsburgh Air Force Base uh, I sometimes half joke I was hired in December 1992 to save Plattsburgh Air Force Base and I'm still trying to make up for that Um but some lessons came out of that, uh, that event, and one of them uh, was that uh, we were not only politically irrelevant in this region, which I think everybody kind of had a sense of, with the exception of Ron Stafford, who could punch above our weight on certain things and deliver dollars to things, but in the bigger scheme, we not only were politically irrelevant, we learned that amongst the political irrelevancies within the state of New York, we were the disposable that if there were four political irrelevancies in the state of New York in a lifeboat and somebody had to be put over the side, it was going to be us every single and time. That's why we lost Plattsburgh Air Force Base, was because of the context uh, that, uh, that we represented within a vast imperial metrocentric state in which we were the disposable, not just the irrelevant, worse than irrelevant. Um, and that, in, in, in my view, and I continue to work very hard Is a reflection of this. I believe that failure is always internal. It's never external. And one of the things that was wrong with the North Country, and there's still some parts of the North Country, particularly to the west, that still suffer from this. Is you know, here's what you kind of hear all the time: Oh, woe be us! That'll never happen here because they don't do anything for us. Oh, they did it to us again. You know, They, somehow, they externalize the failure, Mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to things not happening in your area or not performing or or not getting your share of resources or getting the the bad end of the stick on decisions that should have been the other way. No, those failures are internal. They're your failure. It was the North Country's failure. It was Plattsburgh's failure. Mm -hmm. We hadn't seen the truths of where we lay and hadn't worked effectively to to develop the right kinds of political relationships and presence and storyline that could allow us to outpunch the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, an example is the seven counties of the North Country from here over to Watertown are 20% of the state's geography, but 2% of the state population. There's a couple of numbers to think of. Yeah. Why are we irrelevant and disposable? Well, that defines it. Always going to be unless you're smart enough. Um, and so what uh, we ha- we set about doing and continue to do as what I sometimes term a power organization as opposed to just kind of a a uh, 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 normal sort of chamber of commerce uh, in most areas. A power organization is what this area needed. An organization that knew how to exercise power, uh, accumulate power, hold it, deploy it in strategic ways on behalf of the region to, again, the term I always use is punch above our weight. That was the the fundamental lesson that came out of Plattsburgh Air Force Base for the chamber in that that power organization should be built around the business community in fact, would be best built around the business community in terms of affecting the economy and, and building numbers. Step one was that we needed to build the numbers as best we can. So we needed a regional chamber of commerce, not the Plattsburgh and Clinton County Chamber of Commerce. I'm sorry, but who cares about Plattsburgh and Clinton County in that context of where we were in 1993? Um, but as we have built a regional chamber now that's now Clinton, Franklin, Essex, Hamilton, Northern Warren, and Aquasosny with 4,200 business members, now we're one of the fifth largest business alliances in the state of New York, uh, able to
0: from the, from regional or for uh, Plattsburgh. You mean that whole, the region you said? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. We have 4,200 members now in that, in that region, which puts us in a whole different category. It made, it, it gave us at least the, um, the ability to say we ought to be at that table mm-hmm. and to start to be at tables when in years past we didn't even know there was a table. Nobody ever asked us to the table. We read in the newspaper about decisions that were made, and it was like, wait a minute, when did they talk about that? Because we were irrelevant. Um, but then it needed to be more than that. The numbers were a first step to regionalize the business community so that you have numbers, you have capacity, you have enough resources to build where we are now, uh, you know, with, with an 11-member uh, staff, with a really professional engagement and services, um, But to then, frankly, apply savvy to that, to the utilization of that regionalism, and particularly on the government affairs end, which is, this is, my my juices are still basically political. They just have, they have absolutely no partisanship whatsoever. Mm -hmm. My party is the North Country Party. You do good things for the North Country, you're going to have the support of my party. I don't care what other party you're affiliated with. Um, But the ability to fashion... What I call mutually valuable relationships with political figures. Now, if you're Syracuse, uh, if you're Buffalo, you're a metro area. You're always going to have a share of political attention. You're always going to have an ability with your governor and your your uh, your two U.S. senators and others to to have some impact, to have some relevance. You know, we didn't, uh, and we weren't going to do it by by numbers alone. Um, so my task on behalf of the region for 29 years has been to fashion those relationships, whether it's with Hillary Clinton or Chuck Schumer or past governors or, or our members of Congress, uh, officials in Quebec and Ottawa, uh, is that so important to us uh, to do that in a way that I think most, most of the area sees and would acknowledge that if there is an organization that has substantial political relationships on behalf of this region, it's the North Country Chamber. Um, And the way that I have built that through the years is a very personal style of building it. Um, You know, I I talk with Chuck Schumer about once a month. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't talk about big issues. I don't talk about tax reform or uh, health care or those things. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce can do that. Our, Our little bit of the population in the context of the state of New York isn't going to be relevant to those decisions in Washington. I'm going to talk to Chuck Schumer about Uh, something for Plattsburgh International Airport or staffing levels at the Port of Champlain uh, or broadband funding uh, in the next uh, federal appropriations bill for the Adirondacks or those kinds of things uh, and effectively advocate because we have built a mutually valuable relationship. What do I mean by that? We are always looking forward as to who may be the next, uh, when there are vacancies coming up, uh, who may be the new governor, who may be the new U.S. senator, who may be the new member of Congress, who may be the new commissioner at some department. Um, we're going to reach out well ahead of time and get to those people and brief them and talk to them and start to form a relationship. And by the way, we're going to say, you know what? We're going to be your your partner in the North Country. We're not going to be involved in politics. We're not going to be involved in issues. But you need information. You need assistance in uh, organizing your events, um you know, Chuck Schumer visits every county in, in the state at least once a year. Um, from the very beginning, we established uh, the ability that, you know, we would, we would help take care of that. So that now, and this is, again, just an example, we do this with all of them. Uh, when Chuck Schumer's staff knows uh, that, uh, you know, he's going to visit, he wants to visit Franklin and Clinton counties. You know, I'll get a call and say, Chuck wants to visit Franklin and Clinton counties next, next Thursday. Uh, you got any ideas of what he should do? We actually get to, to suggest and massage what the activities might be. We put some possibilities on the table. You know, oh, I want to do a round table with some business people affected by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to do it at a farm, which is what happened a few months ago when mm-hmm. Chuck last came to Clinton County. Okay, we set it up at Ralph's Orchard. We hosted it. We organized it. We made sure the event was entirely positive. You know, what do we get in return for that access mm-hmm. for North Country issues? And again, that's in a... Nonpartisan way with officials and and commissioners and secretaries and you know across the board that's how we approach government affairs to then be in a position above our weight to be able to advocate effectively on behalf of things specific to the north country that nobody else is going to advocate for if we don't um a lot of it comes down
0: like again if you want something that someone else has it's it's the idea of uh, we don't have the leverage in that relationship. It's the
1: power of relationships, and yeah. and and, re, and re, you turn a relationship, you turn a relationship into mutual value by, uh, I, I mean, I just a simple example. I was remarking to somebody about the other day that, that always astounded me how few people ever did this when they would meet with a congressman or meet with a state senator. Always at some point in the meeting, say, you know, well, thank you very much, senator. What can we do for you? Mm-hmm. It's amazing how how infrequently people say that but there there's the the uh, um the backbone if you will of of always looking for opportunities to do something so that you have the access and the responsiveness you have the relationship that's going to enhance uh, the probability of their being able to assist with the thing you're asking for
0: so when, when you talk about being at the table like how long do you think north the north country's been at the table at the level that you were hoping for or do you think hey going Going forward, obviously you still want to establish relationships and grow, but
1: I think it really coalesced in the very late nineties when we in relationship to another strategic overarching I wanna come back in a minute to the the sense of an overarching strategy within which everything functions. The government affairs work is a is a tool. It's not the overarching strategic vision in and of itself. It's what helps us achieve that. But we had uh, also seen out of the, uh, the closure of Plattsburgh Air Force Base the immense opportunity to look around and assess and decide what we had going for us and uh, what our future ought to be. Uh, and that's when we came upon the notion, uh, and a lot of our members can repeat this now when I say it at an event or a meeting, where things move is where prosperity occurs. That The most fundamental lesson of human economic history uh, I, would, I would put before you uh, is that very fact, that you can virtually trace the rise and fall of zones of prosperity around the world through the centuries in almost direct accord with shifts and dominant routes of movement. Uh, it starts by being something is moving from A to B, and more and more is moving from A to B, more is moving between A and B now than anything else in that region of the world. Uh, now everything else wants to co-locate there, so it becomes, more, becomes about much more than what's being moved back and forth. It becomes about the new zone of prosperity, that things want to be where things are in movement. Uh, And that shifts uh, through history for many reasons, patterns of empire. Uh, In New York, it was the Erie Canal that made uh, New York the empire state. and uh, That fact that we made, DeWitt Clinton made New York the center of movement between uh, the coast and the interior of the country uh, is what did that. Um, You talk about the Suez and and, uh, Panama canals. Um, Talk about going from the age of sail to the age of steam, that vastly shifted uh, places that were uh, were stops and and no longer became stops in trade because steam didn't require them anymore. Uh, The coming of rail vastly changed patterns around the world of prosperity, and then highways and cars. We know how that changed, and then more recent decades, globalization, and particularly within the context of the U.S.-Canadian relationship, which. You had the U.S. and Canada, which for 200 years are almost entirely focused on east-west development, both building transcontinental railroads, transcontinental highways. Uh, we're going to get to the, uh, the resources in the interior. We're going to get them out to our ports and our manufacturing centers. And then almost imperceptibly uh, by, uh, by the early 90s, uh, that had shifted to increasingly, between the U.S. and Canada, a north-south axis. The economies were integrating. NAFTA didn't make that happen, by the way. NAFTA said, this is this is a good thing. It already is happening. Let's facilitate more of it happening. Um, and, and, and it did. Um, that began with four, five, six dominant north route, north-south routes connecting the two countries, carrying more and more of that integrated economic activity. Uh, and then inevitably, each of those corridor regions Uh, arising as new uh, up-and-coming zones of prosperity because where things move is where prosperity occurs. Before I leave, I'm going to get you so that you start saying that when I start saying it. Where things move is where prosperity occurs. I'm going to stick that in the (laughs) cobwebs here, but (laughs) yes. And that understanding that dynamic, that the world had placed us there, we hadn't done a bloody thing to make ourselves part of that dynamic. We were just in the right place in the right time. Mm -hmm. and that, you know, Mark Berry and some people already saw this. you're
0: referring to like I-87, like that North-South? Okay.
1: yes. And that, uh, you know, we could, as many other of these connections North-South have done, we could have sat back and been stupid and lazy, Mm -hmm. and the benefits were starting to fall on our lap, and they would continue to. But imagine what we could do over time if we got up every single flipping day and said, what are we going to do today to broaden and deepen the economic connections between the North Country and Canada? within this Quebec-New York quarter, What are we going to do today? And you do that for 25, 30 years. Imagine how much more value you can extrapolate by that and how you can reposition a regional economy. It takes 20 to 25 years to reposition a regional economy. You don't do it in a couple of years with a strategy or an industrial park or, or any singular project. You do it with an overarching commitment to that vision of what you're repositioning for, which in our case was to make ourselves an important hub and center of foreign investment, within this dynamic, this new north-south route that we were on, so we weren't just a pass-through, but we're providing value to the dynamic uh, and therefore able to extract value back uh, and do that over time and position ourselves uh, as Montreal's U.S. suburb. Yes, it's an amusing term, but it defines a whole different mindset of not thinking about how far we were from Albany or or New York and that, uh, you know, not quite at the end of the earth but on a clear day from Lion Mountain, you can see it from there, um, but instead thinking of ourselves, oh, my gosh, we're part and parcel of one of the most exciting metropolitan cities on the face of the earth mm-hmm. that is one of the most globally connected in an economy that is increasingly global. Uh, we need to be looking north and not be looking south and not be wringing your hand saying, oh, woe be us, we're so far from everything, instead saying, oh, my gosh, aren't we lucky. And, you know, if we hadn't been parochial Americans for so long, you want to think of it this way, and had been an hour outside of Dallas or San Francisco or Atlanta, Mm -hmm. we would have always thought of ourselves as part of that metropolitan region. Yes. But as Americans, oh my gosh, there's a border there. You can't be part of something in another country. So that was part of the mindset that we set and and continue to push to this day within this understanding of the dynamic of how the world changed around us uh, and how we can use the power of movement to effectively, I would suggest over the last 20 years, make Plattsburgh a center for investment and economic growth. Did, were you the one that came up with the idea,
0: the, the suburb of Montreal? Was that like a tr- uh, term you coined, or was that something? Yeah, it, it,
1: it, yeah, it was. I mean, can um, I go to like
0: trademark that as a...
1: There were, there were, there were folks who certainly were working on this notion uh, within the chamber when I came on board. There was a fairly new group uh, called the Can-Am Connection Council, which was a committee of the chamber. Uh, the Mark Berry chaired, uh, Bill Owens was involved, uh, several other people who aren't around anymore. Uh, Herb Carpenter was involved back then and and still involved in these things that that was framing the in, in a narrower vision but understood in essence the importance that where the investment would come from is from Canada and this was an opportunity. I think what the chamber had done, did over time was to expand that vision to see it in an even bigger context so that you know, now, you know, you, you redevelop your Air Force space as a secondary airport from Montreal and bring service here that we never had before because you're, you're thinking of yourselves as Montreal's U.S. airport um, that could uh, fashion a, a cluster of transportation equipment and aerospace manufacturers, and sometimes people forget. You know, in 1992, there wasn't a single transportation equipment aerospace manufacturer in this region, ZIP. There's now 52. There's 52 aerospace and transportation manufacturers, and there are more coming. We're working with a couple now, employing 9,000 people. That all came out of working the dynamic of our proximity to Montreal. All of it. Not just the Canadian companies, but even the Norse Titaniums and some of the more recent ones who are joining because of the cluster and because the cluster is next to the cluster in Montreal. You know, there's those secondary knock-on effects is why that is all happening.
0: So when, when, uh, when was the first, I mean, we've always, I think, probably had a relationship, but when was the big push in to get into Canada? Was that, was that when you first came on? Was that after the, the closure of the base? Like, what's, what's the time frame? It was really
1: before? after really after the closure of the base because it really allowed an opportunity for uh, uh, Mark Berry, Bill Owens, myself, uh, some others, uh, um, uh, Jim Abbott at the time, uh, and some others to start to push the notion that we we needed to go beyond some advertising and occasional meetings to attract a Canadian company here or there, but really use that same kind of approach that I talked about in terms of of how we turn political relationships to our advantage mm-hmm. you know above our weight um, i'm a believer that one of the one of the great aims in economic development for a small area like ours. is is for a small area to figure out what it is that is bigger than itself. And that could be many things. In some area it might be destination tourism. Uh, In another area it might be biotech or some particular economic sector. But what that is that's bigger than itself that it wants to be a part of that it can bring a contribution to. And that's the part that I think a lot of economic development areas miss that final part that they can bring a contribution to. Because it isn't about just wanting, oh, I want, oh, we should get a piece of that. Oh, oh, why can't, you know, they, they got that kind of company over there. We should go and get that. But when you're the small area, how do you get the attention? How do you make yourself relevant? And for us, that thing bigger than ourselves was Montreal. It was Quebec. So
0: what's the draw? Okay, so we got, you know, North Country. What is the draw when you talk about having something that would, why would, montreal want to partner down here and you talked about i mean you brought in the the, uh, the idea of all the manufacturing but what are your your key things that were like your opportunities of saying like well or your presentation to it them?
1: started in a simple way that continues to be the case which is that there's a lot of advantages uh particularly post-nafta which eliminated most um, um tariffs uh, and taxes on exports for canadian and u.s you know made goods back and forth um but if you're a uh, if you're a manufacturer in particular, and you're in Quebec, uh, at some point if you want to grow and you really want to maximize your success, are you going to be satisfied with maximizing what you can do with 30 million people in Canada? Or do you want to start going after a piece of those 300 million consumers in the US who are still the most avid consumers in the world? Uh, you name anything and we won't buy one, we'll buy two in case the first one breaks. Um, you want to be in that market. And, but you know, where and how do you do that? And so we made ourselves an experts uh, and, and are seen as experts throughout Quebec now on helping Quebec companies succeed in the US market. Now, I sometimes joke that I, you know, I could meet a colleague from uh, Nebraska or someplace and try to describe where I'm from. And I'll always describe, well, actually, we're an hour outside in the south of Montreal, where Montreal's US suburb which they really scratch their head about because most people can't picture that, that New York is that close to Montreal until they look at a map. Mm-hmm. I think New York City. New York City is that? No, not New York City. We're a long ways north of New York. New York really is right up next to Montreal. Uh, and then they might ask, oh, you must spend a lot of your time helping your members do business in Canada, to which I say, no, I don't waste a minute on that. We help Quebec companies export to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Now, their heads explode, and we have to clean up the mess after that because they can't contemplate why a chamber in the U.S. would help businesses in another country export to the U.S. But if you're Montreal's U.S. suburb, and you mean that, and you mean that you're in the Quebec, Quebec business, then you know what's good for Quebec is good for you, and you know that that's how you're going to—one of, of the ways— You're going to establish yourself as being of great value to the partners you want to have, the image you want to have, the access you want to have in Quebec, that thing that is bigger than you. It's one of the contributions you can make is to have the red carpet team that we've had for 25 years that sits down with Quebec businesses and takes them by the hand and says, yeah, I know you're interested in a location. Sorry, I know you're in real estate, but one of the first things we tell them is everybody's got locations. Mm -hmm. We'll come back around to that. We're not here to talk to you about a site. We want to talk to you about where you're at and what it's going to take for you to be really successful and maximize your success mm-hmm. in the U.S. market. So let's talk about what kind of incorporation you need to set up and how you should do that. Let's talk about how you structure your finances and your taxes to minimize tax liability and how you're going to repatriate your profits to the parent company in Quebec. Let's talk about employment and skills and recruitment. Let's talk about visas. I know you're concerned about that, You know how you're going to get your managers down here and and, and when can you do that and how can you do that. we got an expert on that. We're going to talk about all of those parts, and then we can back around after they are stunned and amazed. because no economic developers anywhere else talk to them about anything except, well, we got a building over here. It's got water and sewer. Yeah. yeah. Well, everybody's got buildings of water and sewer. Thank you very much. We'll show you those at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But they have seen a team concept that knows this is the place. It isn't just convenient and strategic location-wise, by the way, uh, from Quebec, has this team that I didn't imagine I was, going to, I was going to encounter that's really going to help me through all of these things. In fact, they've just told me things I didn't know I would have to do. They've just told me things I would have done wrong and made a mistake, except these folks are going to help me avoid those mistakes. Wow, this is where I'm going to do things. And we've done that for so many years with, uh, with I think, such effectiveness that we are now the official provider and have been for 20 years now uh, for the Chamber of Commerce of Metropolitan Montreal, uh, for technical support services for Montreal companies looking to do business in the U.S. So they we, they bring their members to us. We don't have to go and look for them and knock on doors anymore. Uh, the FCCQ, which is the Quebec Chamber, does the same thing. And I fairly routinely get referrals even from the Quebec government, who we have a partnership with, including the Premier's office, who, when they have a company looking to develop in the U.S., and they and you know, there's some folks in Plattsburgh that will really help you. That's that's the arrival, and that's how you get to it. You impart value. The other way, uh, notable example in which we imparted value to that thing bigger than ourselves was the border crossing. Now, Quebec was and is an export-driven economy of which it goes up and down a few percent, but 70-plus percent of its exports come to the U.S., always have and always will. I don't care if they up a percent over here with Europe or, or something else. We are always going to be their primary export market. Okay. Um, and approximately half of that comes through Champlain, New York at that border crossing. So it comes right through here. So this immense surging export activity uh, from Quebec to the U.S. is coming through here. Um, That has a lot of value to us. First of all, it it enhances that, that notion of being the place where things move and things needing to then locate around where things move. But even just servicing that, customs brokers and warehouses and distribution and all those other kinds of specialized service providers that are are big here in Plattsburgh, particularly big up in Champlain, you know, supporting and servicing that activity. Um, Now, in the late 1990s, we took note of the fact that the Champlain border crossing was a disaster. Uh, It was basically not much more than had been built for Expo 67 uh, when I-87 was first opened, I-87 and Auto Route 15. uh, Didn't really have any notable commercial um, facilities, even though commercial activity had, at that point, expanded tenfold since NAFTA in terms of the volumes of trucks. Some folks who will remember what it looked like in the late 90s will remember uh, trucks and cars came down together down Auto Route 15 to the border. Only when you drove into the border crossing did the trucks kind of go off a little bit to the right to two potential truck booths, mm-hmm. and the cars went off a little bit to the left to, the, to their booths. Uh, and that we were having uh, frequently in the evenings in particular after trucks had moved out of the Port of Montreal uh, ten to fifteen mile truck backups on Autoroute 15. Ten to fifteen miles wow. of trucks sitting all night long before they could get through and get I mean, out. It's the halfway other end. back up to
0: Montreal. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, Jeez. we already knew we needed to fix that. If you're going to be Montreal's U.S. suburb, if you're going to be an ideal place for investment, you got to be able to get here. You got to enhance that power of movement, that in turn is going to make you the location of choice. So we, uh, one of the problems with Champlain is that unlike most of the other major commercial crossings, certainly in the eastern half of the U.S., most of them are bridges. And those that are bridges, the Peace Bridge, the Ambassador Bridge at Windsor, even Ogdensburg and, and Alex Bay, they have bridge authorities. Mm-hmm. What did that mean? A bridge authority is a third party that actually owns the bridge and has these, this whole team of paid personnel uh, to lobby for staff and investments and, and capital investments and, and policies and technology. Champlain, because it was a, long cro- uh, a land crossing, was directly run uh, by U.S. Customs and Border Protection by the U.S. government, didn't have a third party, and they can't lobby for their own needs. So nobody was advocating for the, the border crossing at Champlain. So how are we ever going to fix this? Somebody, some third party needed to raise their hand. The chamber did and said, okay, we're going to be the stakeholder advocate organization for the Champlain-Lacola border crossing, and we're going to create a vision for what we call the Port of Excellence. We don't want just some fixes. Oh, add another lane here or a little something over there. We want the entire border crossing to be torn down. We want an entirely new port of excellence to be built that will be the model for what a commercial crossing should be on the U.S.-Canadian frontier, and we don't care what it costs. And we use those political strategies with uh, uh, then-Congressman John McHugh, uh, with uh, 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 then-Senator Schumer and and Senator uh, uh, Clinton, Uh, to start to marshal, because we knew how to do this, appropriations in Washington. Mm -hmm. And we ended up with $170 million in investment by the federal and state governments and by Quebec to build the border crossings we now have there, which are the most efficient and effective border crossings in the country. Now, Quebec as an export nation couldn't have done that because it's in another country. So this is vital to them, but they couldn't fix it. But here, the real point, 2001, 9-11, it didn't take long after we first all got over the shock of the tragedy of it, uh, for the business community in Canada generally, in Quebec in particular, to then also start to wake up and say, "Oh my gosh, we have a gateway to the U.S. market, which is what which is the business we are in. The, we are in the U.S. business. That gateway that services the U.S. market for us and lets us in, it already isn't working, and now I bet they're going to apply all kinds of new security measures." In fact, we learned in 9-11, you know, the border could even close. It didn't, as it happened at that time, but it could have. And it just, it was a wake-up call. But then they realized, oh my gosh, it's worse than all that. We can't do anything about it. It's in another country. And that's, again, we firmly raised our hands with the Montreal Chamber and the Quebec government and said, trust us, we're going to fix this. We're going to give you not only the kind of border crossings you deserve, we're going to give you border crossings that allow you to outcompete Ontario and New Brunswick and other provinces as a place of location, because you're going to have the best gateway uh, in the entire U.S.-Canadian frontier to the U.S. market. And we did that for them. That's when we became the little guy who was the equal partner with Montreal and with Quebec. And that we was— de- We delivered. Well, when was that completed? It was around 2005, I think, when it was fully completed. There are actually elements that are still ongoing because our vision for a port of excellence was to continue with all elements of the border crossing. So we more recently uh, obtained $49 million uh, in the uh, Canadian budget a few years back for new facilities that are continuing to unfold at Lacalle going north. Uh, We leveraged uh, funding into the Canadian Pacific uh, Railway. Uh, We leveraged uh, a doubling of staffing, Uh, We're currently working to, hopefully this year, uh, obtain a green light for a new border crossing at Rouse's Point uh, to replace the outdated crossing there. Mm -hmm. Um, So we continue to do these other elements to work on a port of excellence. Um, But the keystone certainly was the port of Champlain.
0: What is, like you said, uh, 170
1: million here, 170 million there. You know, before you know it, you can do some things yeah so
0: the uh and you said a lot of that came from the federal government yes most of it um
1: and we fought for it i could i could take you down to the reagan building in washington and uh, virtually show you where the bloodstains are on the marble floors and we came down to the point of fighting with the bean counters after we got the project approved and then they started saying well this is an awfully big project they don't need that much capacity we can cut this we can cut that and we fought to the bitter end um and uh john McHugh at that point really helped us in that regard We saved every critical element of the original division. We kept them from from cutting. They they wanted to cut the now eight uh, bays in the commercial warehouse. By the way, the old port had one functional bay. Uh, We designed one with eight. They wanted to cut that to six, well, over our dead body. We got the eight. Uh, They wanted to cut this massive parking area uh, at the commercial warehouse because they said, oh, with new technologies, we're not going to need all that room for trucking. Uh, to which we said, you know, hell no, you're going to leave that alone because that's the flexible capacity for the future. And now, uh, during normal times, that parking area is used when there are when there are huge volumes of buses coming down rather than having them sit on, on Auto Route 15 like at Easter time when Quebecers traditionally come down in huge bus numbers to New York to bring them over and flexibly process them on that unnecessary parking lot. So we just fought every which way to make sure every element of that got built. So when you...
0: What's your? your, Go back to strategy. You go into you know something like that, which is obviously a major, a major stepping stone or a major win for the area. What do you like? What? What's the the? You know, I don't want to say years, days, months leading up to it. I mean, do you go into one of those things where they're trying to fight you on it, and you guys again are getting, you know, you're saying your side of it. Obviously, very passionate about what you want to do. I mean, are you someone that just? plans and plans and plans to the point where it's like there's not a kink in your armor kind of thing like you know when you're someone getting ready for you know a sport game or or a match or something like that you practice you practice you go over scenarios you go over everything so when it comes time to the game there's no way you're gonna lose because you're literally like you're bulletproof do you find that going into negotiations like that you have done your homework backwards and forwards and almost tried to put yourself your idea out of business kind of thing there's always the, the the analogy of you know, put yourself out of business before someone else does, meaning, you know, you got to have your-, your
1: story. You got to have your ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. You got to be generally right about what it is you're advocating for. Um, but but on the other hand, all of that is irrelevant. Um, if you don't have the political relationships to inspire them to see this as a favorable project, they want to be associated with and will support and to get those appropriations in the bills uh, to go to the commissioner and say, you know, hell no, I hear you're trying to cut this funding over my dead body, commissioner. Are you going to cut that funding? you got to have that kind of relationship, and that's how projects get done. So it, That's how big projects get done. I guess you, you say it's
0: almost like a passion project. Like This is something that you stand 100% behind. Obviously, you do your homework on somebody it.
1: Has to, somebody always has to champion a project. A project with a committee but no champion is not, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Projects are champion. The chamber was a champion. Uh, on the border project, and it's been the champion of a number of other projects. I would conservatively, I have no druthers saying that the chamber has, over the last 25 years, been directly responsible easily for more than $1 billion in federal and state funding into this area that would not have happened or would not have happened to the same extent but for the advocacy and involvement of the chamber. And that's one of the values we bring as a power organization to the economy of this region.
0: So when you hear, you know, and again, especially during COVID and stuff, I I was, I'm not a very political kind of guy. I kind of stay at like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in it too much. I don't like the, the bipartisanship and, and, but during COVID I was more in tune to stuff because obviously things are going on. And the one thing I really thought was kind of cool was every time the governor came on and talked, it was the North country was mentioned as the North country. And when when was was that about that same time, like you said, probably the late 90s, that it started getting relevant as the North Country? Or do you think that that has been more of a recent, you know, a recent turn that's been well, thrown what, around by the state level?
1: What uh, Governor Como did uh, starting 10 years ago, um, which actually we were amongst those who encouraged uh, thinking along these lines uh, up to a couple of years ahead of that when it was clear he was going to run for governor and had an opportunity to have some conversations with him. Uh, was to remake economic development in the state of New York and look at it from a region-by-region basis instead of what they had always done, which is pick out kind of the flavor of the year. Oh, we're going to be all about widget manufacturing now, and that's where we're going to put all of our effort, and our area might not have anything to do with widget manufacturing, uh, but it would all be statewide, one-size-fits-all approaches to economic development in terms of strategies and resources. That it's harder to do it region by region, but it can be far more effective because every region is different in its assets, its characteristics, its opportunities, its connections. Uh, So invest in those on a region by region basis. And so, of course, he set up the regional council system. And uh, I was named uh, co-chair and served as co-chair for eight years. Uh, Tony Collins and I uh, were the longest serving pair of co-chairs in that entire system. They finally let us retire after eight years. And what years are we talking about?
0: Ballpark. You said ten years ago, probably two thousand ten. Ten
1: years ago, till yeah, like uh, till just two years ago. Okay,
0: it's ten through eighteen. Yeah, roughly. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um. That's when certainly the fact that all state funding or almost all state grant programs were going to go through this regional council system, and have to be consistent with an agreed regional plan. And have to be blessed in some different ways by this Regional Economic Development Council that the governor appointed forced a lot more regionalism. We had already done a lot as the chamber, regionalizing the chamber, to establish a solid foundation of collaboration, certainly in the business community, in Clinton, Franklin, Essex, Hamilton, Northern Warren. Um but, you know, never the twain shall meet in terms of then St. Lawrence, uh, you know, Jefferson, Lewis, the counties over in kind of the, the other side of the mountains and, and what's uh, talked about as the North Country. Um, putting us together forced a broader concept of region and forced collaboration. And uh, that still has some benefits and will continue to. It Just one example is that it, uh, it really brought us and our area on uh, a number of occasions into the efforts in support of Fort Drum. Now, that wasn't something those of us over here are going to wear a Fort Drum but didn't think of it as part of our area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, in turn, you know, supported things related to the border and whatnot over here. So it laid some foundations for mutual support between those two areas of the North Country, the East and the West sectors, um, that were good. Um, but I would say the the Western part, those western counties of the seven-county North Country region are not united. Um, have no strong regional chamber. The business community is fractured, even with, in each of those counties, um, as it used to be over here. Uh, so we are are well ahead, uh, but it did uh, it did foster some relationships that were that were new to us.
0: You're talking about the, the the western. You're talking about like Saint Lawrence County, Saint uh, Lawrence and,
1: and Watertown area, all over there in the Saint Lawrence part of the region.
0: Now, is that stuff that you work with them to try to to build that up at all? Or is that kind I of did, out of focus? I did,
1: I did for eight years. It's not my mission anymore. Okay. So so I'm, was... I'm back to focusing on my organization and the counties that we service.
0: Um, so what is... How was COVID this year? I mean, obviously, this has been... I I would think over the last 23 years, I'm I'm guessing the base closing, I'm guessing September 11th, the recession, and then this is probably the top four. I might be missing one in there. but
1: It depends on what you're measuring. This is uh, far and away, in comparison to any of those, uh, far and away the most impactful on business and the economy. Far and away. Okay. Because of the shutdowns, the direct interruption of business of all types at all levels, um, and the length of time it's taken even to get a hold of it in terms of management. Uh, wise as opposed to uh, to coming out the other end of it. Um, I have referred to it uh, from the chamber's perspective as uh, the worst of times and the best of times. It's kind of Dickensian in some ways. It's the worst of times for all the obvious reasons. I don't have to recite them all. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the death and illness of of many North Country residents, uh, the, the the whack that it's taken on uh, on business uh, in the area. Um, I mean, I'm looking out here at the marina. I mean, mm-hmm. most marinas hardly had any boats Bear in the water the this summer yeah. because they're all Canadians. Mm-hmm. The unprecedented closure of the border to personal travel, which is something that didn't even happen after 9-11, which is a good perspective to kind of have. You would have thought if it would, that would have been one of the first things they would have done after 9-11. And the decision between the two countries was, oh, no, you know, border travel remains open even that day. Um, so all of those impacts, on the other hand, from the Chamber's perspective, just talking on behalf of the Chamber, I'll have to say it's been the best of times. It's not been the best of times financially. Uh, we've taken about a thirty to forty percent whack in finances, but you know what? We don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided to go into debt. We decided to mount our mission and meet our responsibility on the field. That we were not going to lay off staff. We were not going to diminish the team we've built. We're not going to diminish the work of the chamber at at the very time when the chamber needed to step up and really be helpful to the business community in the area. So we will work our way out of the debt. Not worried about that. Mm-hmm. Um, But it's been the best of times in terms of our interaction with the business community and the work that we're doing on a macro level and on an individual level. I don't think we've ever had as strong and interactive a relationship one-on-one with hundreds and hundreds of our members who we have dealt with individually and assisted, whether it's uh, with personal protection equipment uh, or whether it's assisting them with their, their federal loan application, understanding what they need to do. Uh, or whether it's helping them with their health insurance when they laid off and then brought back their employees, or whether it's answering questions about how to comply with some regulation. Uh, Whatever it is, we're we're doing it this morning. We're doing it today. Uh, Continuing to do it. So that level of interaction, I think, has uh, has made all of us, I know at the North Country Chamber, more proud than we already were, more proud than we've ever been uh, to be in the chamber business, uh, to be in the business of helping people Uh, who are desperate, uh, in many cases, for assistance to come through and out the other end of this.
0: Well, I think, uh, I mean, March 20th was the last day that we could, in in person, do real estate. So, we kind of went into like our two two and a half month shutdown. Um, I think it was on more seminars or seminars, webinars that you guys put on just to listen and listen in. And part of it was just to kind of at least be aware of some stuff that was going on. It may not have affected me personally, but it was one of the things. And we that, started
1: the daily dose. Uh, that, that's that, phenomenal. The that, that order yeah. came down on that Friday. It was being talked about, rumblings of it the prior couple of days, and we had canceled a few things about the closure. About the closure. Okay. This, this might be coming. Um, and then it came on Friday, and it was going to start either on Sunday or Monday. I don't remember which. Um, and yeah. we, we put out a call and convened all the staff at the office on Saturday, and everybody was there. And said, okay, we're closed as of Monday. This is how we're going to work from work. Make sure you take everything home that you need. This is how we're going to keep operations going. But we went beyond that. We said, okay, how are we going to start responding to this thing? And that Monday, we started the Daily Dose. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to inform our members. We need to be the go-to source for them that they can be confident in and depend on for information on everything that relates to this thing. uh, And to do it every single day because it's going to be a moving target that's going to be constant. We need to be the advocates in Albany and Washington on things, and we continue to do that, both in a casework kind of way for individual businesses having a problem, but also more broadly in terms of the resources and the programs and the things uh, that we need. And little did we know at that point that very soon that advocacy was going to also include border-related advocacy and helping to deal with that, both for our companies and supply chains, but also for those uh, impacted by the travel restrictions, uh, that we need to be about... Information, assistance, guidance, and advocacy. Those are the four words, and we talk about them every staff meeting. Information, assistance, guidance, advocacy. And to make ourselves the center point of that, not just for the business community but for the region, because who else is going to do it if we aren't? Mm-hmm. A lot of fine organizations are going to do a lot of fine work, but somebody's got to kind of be uh, the air traffic controllers uh, of this thing. Um, and uh, we see, we have the relationships we have the capacity. We have the skill sets. Let's get out there and do it. And the team has performed fabulously ever since then.
0: Yeah, I mean the proactiveness of the chamber this year has been incredible. And, and again, having only I've only been really involved in kind of watching what you guys have done over the last four years, maybe. But um, this year, it's like definitely struck a chord in the sense of you see other parts of the country that I think are you know are very struggling, and, and I think that again the leadership at the chamber has made this experience um, not as probably terrible as it could have
1: been. And well, the, and the, gra- the, the real gratifying part of it is we know of all the cases where we've actually been of assistance uh, in a collective sense, but also to individual members, just hundreds of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, that we're not going to talk about it, but many of them will. Um, but we have had hundreds that like every month we probably have approaching a hundred uh, notes and comments and emails from businesses in the area saying thank you yeah. uh, for this, or thank you for that, or thank you uh, for the information I get in the dose every day, or thank you for your webinar. I didn't understand, now I know what to do. Um, so that part has been uh, been very gratifying uh, as well. yeah uh, I, I, But I also, I want to point out something else, a very practical way, very business-like way. We are a business organization at the end of the day. Most of my fellow chambers banked on at the very beginning taking a huge hit on membership investments. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, people aren't going to be able to pay their dues. We're going to take a big hit on that. Let's count on maybe an average of 20%, you know, loss in the coming months of membership revenue. And so let's lay off these two people because we're not going to have that, re- that. That was the pathway they started down. We started down a totally different pathway. We're going to sustain and grow everything uh, no matter what it costs. And uh, the finances will work themselves out at some point in the future. But given what we've done, um, what's been... Really gratifying in a tangible way is our membership has grown.
0: I was going to ask you that. Has is it,
1: is it? We have not enough? lost membership. We've lost some members. There's some closed. There's some that have some real economic. Greed. But even many of those who are in real economic challenge, who we've been helping, instead of being the first thing they cut in their expenses, we become the last thing they cut in their expenses mm-hmm. because we're showing value, and that that is. Uh, in terms of the business operation of the chamber, that has been extremely gratifying. And it's amazing how many members have been making outright contributions. I want to, I want to give you guys some extra money. I know you know I know I you need it, and you're doing great work. Uh, we've had uh, one company in town step forward and said we want to give you $10,000. Another wow. company in town step forward and said, uh, if you just fill this out with, with what you're going to do, uh, we, we want to give you $25,000. Wow. Um, so that's, that's gratifying. hmm That's gratifying. I was
0: going to say, do you find that the members have stepped up a little bit to kind of, uh, you know, I I say kind of have like a North Country uh, strong mentality, kind of like, hey, we're going to help each other out. Some people are more fortunate than others. I think
1: think so. And you see the amazing things. I mean, one of the examples was uh, uh, when Matt Spiegel, you know, stepped in to help uh, Aleka's. Uh, yeah. By being yep. able to to use uh, his restaurant at Alice Ridley's, all of Ridley's yeah. because they they couldn't operate and were going to have to be shut down. There are stories like that all over the area uh, yeah. where businesses help businesses. Yeah, and I think it's good. I
0: just I I think there's a lot. Uh, I think the one, one of the pros I think of our area is that we do have a very strong connection to the area. Where I mean, I grew up here my whole life. I have no intention of ever leaving. I just I love the area. I have family here. I just you know, and I find that a lot of people. I mean, yes, there's people that leave and come back and everything, but I think there's a lot of people locally that are like, this is where, this is my roots. This is where, you know, I want to better this area. And I always look at, from a standpoint of, you know, losing people, it's like, you know, kids that go to college and stay away, it's like you, you want them to...
1: People are always going to go away. They always have them. They always will. That's okay. Yeah,
0: and it, but it's the idea of trying, like you said, trying to build this area up where maybe it's more enticing, not maybe it's more enticing, but maybe it's... it's people look at it more as an option and say, well, I don't have to go to a major city or I have to go to some place to have a job or an opportunity. Well, what
1: what we have to be is the best of what we are and not what somebody else is. So I hate it when people say, Oh, we should be more like Burlington or we should be more like Saratoga mm-hmm. or more like Sa- no, we should be the best Plattsburgh we can be mm-hmm. and be proud of the things that are different about us than other places that people look at and try to compare us falsely to Plattsburgh. I always describe the Plattsburgh area as a place that makes things. This is a manufacturing community. It has been a manufacturing community for 200 years. One of the unique things about this, which we use as a talking point with companies looking at investing here, is that unlike most other manufacturing communities similar to Plattsburgh, across upstate New York, across New England, across the Midwest, most of them are places that used to make things. They don't really make things anymore. In fact, so many of them are characterized by the closed-up plant with a cyclone fence around it and the graffiti-covered buildings in their downtown uh, they lost manufacturing, uh, and they never found out what they're going to be unless they just became a bedroom community for some nearby metropolitan city, uh, but they lost their way. It's important to to realize and think back, Plattsburgh never had that happen. Plattsburgh never lost its manufacturing base, ever. It, it's It's almost unique in terms of how it was a manufacturing center never stopped being a manufacturing center, and remains and is poised for decades to come to be a manufacturing center. When you lose your manufacturing capacity, when you become one of those communities where the mills closed, and that's now 10, 15, 20 years out, you're not going to get that culture ever back again. You're, you're the, uh, the orientation of your workforce to go to work at the factory every day is lost, your training and support systems that were oriented to the mill and to the factories and to manufacturing is gone because you aren't training people for those kinds of jobs anymore. Your suppliers and specialists and consultants and vendors that support manufacturing are gone because the customers are gone. Um, very, very hard, if not almost impossible, to get that back. We never lost that, and that is a real value that manufacturers find when they come here is that, is that intrinsic manufacturing culture uh, that we have, we have maintained here. Things left, things always will leave, but as things left, new things came in. Uh, so yeah, Imperial paper left. Yeah. Pfizer over a number of years left transportation equipment came in new kinds of, so we didn't lose the culture. We didn't cease being a manufacturing center. We shifted and morphed into new generations and new things uh, that we're making. And, uh, we need to value that. Uh, we are a manufacturing community and that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. I think it's a proud thing as Americans to be a place that makes things. We we should be proud, and I think much of our workforce is proud of the things they make. They're proud of the trains; they know people are riding on the buses that they know are going up and down city streets. They're proud of the chandeliers from Swarovski that are in all kinds of places around the world. Uh, You know, they're proud of the products that they're making.
0: So when when you the manufacturing most of the sector like where. Where do you bring in most of the manufacturing companies? Is it from Canada? Is it other places? United States? That are, or, or in Nor- like Norsk sure. it is a European Just as country. yeah,
1: just as uh, you know, I mentioned you know Quebec is always going to be in the U.S. business. Mm-hmm. We are always going to be in the Quebec business, and that, that that includes you know where investment and opportunity is coming from. However, we have grown particularly in the transportation equipment and aerospace cluster to a point where the power of the cluster is now attracting investment from other places and other countries around the world. North Titanium from Norway being a key example of that, but there are many others who want to be part of that cluster. So they're being drawn to the cluster. The cluster, in turn, was drawn to its proximity to Montreal and will always be fostered by investment out of Canada. But it, clustering is what every economic development entity wants to do, and we did it here in the North Country, and it needs to be appreciated. Every economic development uh, area has a cluster strategy, the power of clustering is to get a number of like companies in a sector because companies more and more around the world want to be near other companies like them. They don't want to be isolated. They don't want to be the only uh, transportation equipment maker in that region. Uh, Clustering allows you to tap the culture, the resources, the skills of that area that are going to be at a different level because it isn't just you. It's 51 other companies uh, kind of like you. It's going to allow things like the Institute for Advanced Manufacturing and the things the CV Tech does to support your sector. that would be hard to do for one employer with 200 people, but 52 employers and 9,000 people, now you can support support systems for yourself and your company that don't exist otherwise, the vendors, the suppliers. I mentioned they get lost uh, when you don't have these. You've got a cluster. You start to, to cluster the skill sets and the vendors and the specialized service providers. So we did that here. We did it here in the North Country. They've had a hard time still figuring out how to do it in places like Buffalo and other areas. We did it here in the North Country, and that's something to be proud of and remark about and sit back and say, hmm, you know, it happened over 25 years. I didn't quite take notice, I like the frog in the boiling water, I didn't quite take notice mm-hmm. of, of the degree to which it had happened. But, wow, 52 companies clustered here and now more, two in the pipeline right now that you'll hear about soon, um, that are coming here because of the power of the clustering that we've accomplished.
0: So... Again, Gary Douglas, 25 more years. Is this still, we're still going, like, is that still the path? You're like, hey, we, we just going to continue what we're doing and just do it better and do it more. I'd say better, but just continue to do it.
1: It's still working. It's taken 25 years to reposition the economy, mm-hmm. uh, and we've done that. Uh, and one of the things I sometimes point out that uh, when a chamber is at its best, and I like to think ours is, when a chamber is at its best, what it can best do in economic development are the things that reposition a regional economy. Um, a lot of other kinds of economic development organizations who do outstanding work, uh, but particularly in a lot of smaller areas in upstate New York, um, are can tend to be focused. Development Corporation is, is an exception. The Saratoga Economic Development Corporation is an exception. There are some exceptions, but are focused on the real estate. And it's hard for them to focus on a 25-year vision of how to build relationships with Quebec or to how to work the equation in uh, in Washington, where we have the kinds of relationships that can deliver resources and personnel and things that we need. Those kinds of things that are parts of the picture of repositioning the economy that then is going to fill buildings and industrial parks. And that's been our role in economic development and will continue to be.
0: So the um, when you talk about the vision of, of the chamber, um, I mean... When you do strategy and you plan out and figure out, like, how how far in the future are you focused on? Are you focused on the next five, 10 years? Are you 30, 40 years? I mean, obviously, I know there's probably a little bit of both, but when you're really sitting down and developing a plan, now that we're 25 years in, like, and you're saying the stuff that's happening now was kind of stuff you had envisioned back in the early 90s, like, where are you going from here? Like, what is your vision for Plattsburgh? Or North, at Yeah, North to, uh,
1: to continue uh, to, to build the transportation equipment aerospace cluster to support its growth. It has enormous opportunity for growth. We, we got into that business very consciously and for good reasons. I don't know how much longer, and, and I won't say anything in particular to insult anybody, uh, but let's say there was a widget manufacturer in town. Well, I don't know how much longer we're going to make widgets here. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. is always going to make things that make things move. We are about movement and not just about the power of movement in terms of our position in the world, but think, think about the connection with putting ourselves in the business of making the things that make things move. We are put ourselves foursquare into movement. The airport is about movement. The border is about movement. Everything is about that singular power that we recognized 25 years ago of economic growth around movement in various ways. We are always going to make those things here. Um, so being in the bus and train and, and other kind of movement business Uh, Aircraft components is a good business to be in, particularly if you're diversified within it. So we wanted initially, ideally, and we've achieved that ideal, rail, which we got with Bombardier about 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. road, which we got about 12 years ago with Volvo, uh, Nova Bus, and then Prevo, and aerospace, which we now uh, certainly have in a big way with Norse Titanium, uh, all of which are different facets of movement but have a lot of interconnections in terms of suppliers and vendors and, and specialized services, um, that uh, that now offers a lot for growth. Now, let me point this out. Everybody would say in economic development, we've got to somehow be in those cutting-edge technologies. We've got to somehow be part of artificial intelligence. We've got to somehow be part of advanced materials. You know who's always at the cutting edge of every new technology? Transportation equipment and aerospace. So you have transportation equipment and aerospace. You are automatically in the sectors that are always going to be the first adopters and the first investors in all of those new technologies like, uh, like uh, artificial intelligence, advanced materials, additive manufacturing, North, witness Norse titanium, et cetera. Uh, so you have put yourself, rather than the, the widget factory, you put yourself into a business line that, first of all, clusters, because it brings um, suppliers and vendor manuf- uh, supply manufacturers with them. So it has a multiplier effect. That makes it a good sector to be in. It's a sector that's always, in spite of some ups and downs, well, there can going to be fewer train sales this year, but buses may be up. Um, there are going to be some ups and downs, but it's always going to be there in terms of its role in the economy, its role in moving the economy, and is always going to then almost automatically put you into those high technology sectors because they're the ones that are going to use it. So
0: yeah, a hundred percent. Speaking of the airport, um, again, I remember as a kid, the airport being the little, uh, Single building down on, uh, you know, just where Norsk yeah. is now to where it has grown to, and again talking about you know being a Canadian hub for for travel. Um, I mean, what what's your vision for the airport going forward? I mean, it, it's had, I mean, to me, the last ten years has been tremendous growth of the of the airport. Yeah.
1: Well, the the vision for the airport fits into everything else. It fits into the notion of being about movement, and if you're going to make yourselves, uh, as FDI magazine has proclaimed us twice, uh, they pr- proclaimed Plattsburgh to be amongst the top 10 micropolitan cities of the future in the entire Western Hemisphere for foreign direct investment. you know, there's something to think about. Um, You gotta be able to get here and you gotta be able to get in and out. Um, And so we had the opportunity with those massive facilities to have an airport that was more than a couple of puddle hoppers a day with with five people Mm -hmm. uh, going somewhere, which was never used for business travel. It was totally impractical. Um, To add that power to our attractiveness and to our growth potential But then you were never going to do that as long as the mindset was it's Clinton County's airport. What the Air Force Base gave us and the bigger picture that we've talked about gave us was, think, Montreal. Montreal at that point was the last great metropolitan city in North America that did not have a single secondary airport. Many major metropolitan cities like Chicago have two, three, four, five secondary airports within an hour, an hour and a half of them that add to the variety of air service, that add choice, that add competition, that allow low-cost carriers to come in and service that metro region that couldn't do it by going into the main airport because the costs are so high, uh, it would ruin their, their low-cost uh, business model. Um, and so we had uh, Montreal, we had the Trudeau Airport run by an arrogant monopoly, that has great political muscle that will never and still will never allow any other airport in southern Quebec to touch a passenger. Uh, consequently, they were able to become the second most expensive airport in the world. So you can never get discount airlines in there, for example, even though it's a, it's a market that is rich with travelers. Montrealers love to travel everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're paying far too much to do that because they were being precluded from choice. We were able to raise our hands and say, yo, Trudeau Airport. You can't control what happens on this side of the border, so we're going to be Montreal's secondary airport. So that was the mindset change from Clinton County Airport to Plattsburgh International, was to create something that could then draw a service here that would never happen as long as we were thinking of 80,000 people in Clinton County, like the old airport, but instead we're thinking of 4 million plus people and being a secondary airport for that metropolitan region and that's what has brought us the great success. Now we're going through a real tough patch. Talk about the pandemic impacts, with the border closed to personal travel. But we'll come out the other end of it. It's a pause, um, and, but we're positioned for great things out there. Even what has continued there, was unthinkable as long as we were still the little Clinton County Airport. Uh, you, you, United Express jet service, you know, twice a day to Dulles International Airport in Washington, mm-hmm. with one-stop connectivity to the entire country and the world. That's. That really is because of what we've built here. Uh, people have almost, and it's natural. It's 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 human character to take things for granted. But um, but they need to need to stop and and pause for a moment and think how how unimaginable it was not that many years ago that we'd have direct jets to Florida from Plattsburgh, New York.
0: I know it's crazy. I, I and now it's
1: just kind of taken for granted. Yeah, you know I'm I'm going to run down to Florida. Uh, for a few days, and I'm going to play golf in Myrtle Beach, and I'm going to, you know, but but that was all made possible. Now, with the customs facilities out there that Governor Como gave us the funding to build in the new terminal um, position us for eventually, again, pause because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but it will eventually happen because it just market forces say it will. We will have direct international service here for all the same reasons that the discount carriers came here uh, to take uh, uh, Quebecers to Florida and, and other warm destinations. Uh, they will be here to take them to Cancun and uh, the Dominican Republic and maybe even Europe and other destinations because they can do so at lower cost and lower airfares here than they can out a Trudeau. It will happen. It will come. And won't that be an amazing day when it does happen?
0: So- So you're talking like, you know, flights to Europe, you're you're thinking flights down, like you said, the Caribbean or South America, like that's a real possibility. Oh, yeah. The
1: Montreal market has absolutely told us that they are anxious for service out of here to some some destinations. Uh, Number one, which we can't do, but maybe that'll change is Cuba. Yeah. Uh, Second is Dominican Republic. They go there big time. Third is Cancun.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, I, I heard some, was it rumblings a couple of years ago about a flight to Heathrow, but that could have been, you know, just, um, you know, I guess I say gossip, but, but hopes. But like I said, that, that was probably not far yeah, off the future. If the pandemic
1: would have, wouldn't have hit, I would say by, by this year, we would have been seriously, I predict we would have seriously been talking with at least a first uh, international service. That's great. You know, but now things are off for a couple of years, but be patient. It'll come.
0: It, it, it's one of the, well, it's, it's one of those things. And, and again, I know this sounds, when you look back on stuff and it seems like you've come so far and that it's actually happening, like, man, I remember back then thinking about it, it just seems so far away. I mean, as a kid, Burlington, Albany, you know, Montreal, I mean, I even think about going out of Plattsburgh. And now I don't think I've taken a flight. Um, I've taken a flight. I've been to Florida a few times, a few other places by the DC flight or direct flight down. I don't think I've gone to the Burlington airport in five, six years. Cause I haven't had to,
1: we have no. European business visitors here now because our manufacturing community is so international who now come in here or they did before the pandemic and travel restrictions, but started coming in here and will restart coming in here at some point from places uh, like Norway and France and Italy to Dulles and then directly into Plattsburgh. I
0: mean, can't beat it for them. It's, it's a t- yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible. The, uh, here, let me see a couple questions here that, um, so I'm not losing any of the focus that I want to do because you, you've touched on most of these. Um, what's your the, now, this is something that I've always look again, looking at you and hearing from a lot of people talk about um, leadership. And you've been at the helm of this for, you know, 25
1: or 29 years, you said, right? 20, yeah, 29 20 math, math, right? 29. Um, as I, As I told you earlier, I haven't decided yet if it's what I really want to do. But I don't like to rush into things, so I'll give it a little more time. Keep your options open. the. That's, um, the uh, I might I might decide to give real estate a
0: try. <laughs> well, I'd love to have. I don't I don't know if you could put up with me for. Maybe you could. I don't know. Like I said, I'm I'm getting. Uh, you drink coffee? Yes. Can, okay, then you might be able to hang. I'm up.
1: useless until my tenth cup.
0: <clears throat> I like it. I was gonna say I just finished probably my third. So, um, but uh, leadership. What what's your what's your thoughts on? How how do you lead? Because this is something that's new to me now, the last couple of years, taking more of a, a role of, you know, being a leader. Um, and it's something that I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's a challenge to me. It's not something that I mean, I, I'm one that I think I lead more by example, but I think I also lead, I have to lead a little bit by, I think, enthusiasm a little bit. And I think people feed off that. But what's your, what's your focus on leadership? Do you, I mean, do you focus on it? Like, hire you,
1: people that are smarter than you and things that you're not that good at and let them run and empower them and, and let them do what they do. And that's, that's why I think my team is very stable, and I think it's why it's very able uh, at the chamber. That's my management style in terms of people. Um, in terms of kind of a philosophy of leadership, I'm a believer that there are several elements to leadership that everybody can develop uh, to, to different degrees, and that leadership is about, and I use this word a lot, I'm about to use it again, it's about power. You know, a lot of people say, oh, power, power is bad. I don't, want, I don't want to talk about le- leadership is kumbaya and warm and fuzzy. You don't want to use a word like power. You no, know, power is what you do with your ability to influence events and people and things. There's nothing, you know, pejorative about the word power. Uh, but how you build leadership ability really is by understanding facets of personal power. Uh, first of all, there, there, there's official power. There's a power that simply goes with the office that you hold or the position that you hold. I'm president of the Chamber of Commerce. These people work with me. I have powers. Mm-hmm. I have powers to pay or not pay, or to or to reward or to approve or not approve things. So that's a form of power. Um, but then beyond that, um, one of the uh, the great forms of power, I believe, is is, is relationships. Um, it's you know if you want to look at it in another way, you know the, the notion of it's not what you know, it's who you know uh so the ability to fashion and cultivate and collect meaningful relationships over time um that the people that you can reach out to and in my case has happens to be a lot of political people it could be a lot of business people a lot of people in your sector comes from networking it comes from doing things for people so that you start to form relationships um that is a way to build power if you become the person or the organization that is thought of you know they're the ones that'll, that'll know who it is to do that that's power mm-hmm. now people are going to come to you and say you know i I don't know how to get to so and so but you know could you do that for me absolutely I'll call Joe today mm-hmm. uh, let me let, let me send out an email and I'll introduce the two of you and I'll be happy to the, I'll be happy to then host a, host that's a power and everybody can develop that through their careers or whatever it is um, that they do and another is expertise no some topics, one or could be more, but certainly definitely at least one uh, that's relevant to what you want to exercise leadership in and know it inside and out and become the perceived expert in it, the go-to person. Now, you think about the Chamber of Commerce. What, what are we expert in? The U.S.-Canadian relationship, the border, Quebec-New uh, York relations and business. We're the experts. We're contacted by Canadian media across Canada, by U.S. media across the U.S. anytime there's something with a border. Um that that reputation that then comes with being seen as an expert carries power because it brings people to you um, that uh, that then need you for something or are looking to you for something, and that's something every, everybody can do. Figure out what you can become an expert at that's of value to your organization or your field, and then make sure that you're seen as possessing that expertise and always hone and cultivate that personal expertise. Those are some simple ways that everybody can – I think those are ingredients of leadership – I think good leaders have different factors; are stronger in one of those things than others. Um, but somehow, if they're an effective leader, they have some combination of those things that they then uh, assert that power well and in effective ways uh, to help get things done.
0: And how does that, from a day-to-day perspective, at the chamber? Like you, you go in eleven. There's eleven of you at the chamber. Um, again, being the, the the president of the chamber, that I mean, you, you carry that leadership, but In a day-to-day thing, are you, um, do you meet with people regularly day-to-day? Are you, again, very, hey, I'm, you know, Joel, take it away. You're an Amstrand. You're you're going to, you know.
1: I have an open-door policy, um, and and sometimes I'm busy and it can get annoying a little bit, but I have an open-door policy, and my my staff comes in. They they know that I'm not a micromanager, but they develop a sense that, that, you know, the boss does want to know what's going on. Uh, so they'll tell me that you know I just talked to so and so, and and you'll want to know that you know they said okay, or or we're we're going to have another. They keep me informed, uh, and that's important. Uh, it gives me the opportunity to ask a I'll ask questions. Uh, I'll express opinions on some things. I'll critique something now and then, but I don't micromanage. And they know they don't have to bring everything to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, like, and that's that's. Um I do that with a lot of things, and like, again, I kind of take that idea. Like I, even professionals in other fields to manage my life, whether it be financing or whether it be you know, accounting and stuff. It's like I, I find people that I like, I trust, and, and, and are what if I would If you
1: th- hire people and they are coming to you for, to check their, the decisions on everything, yeah. one of two things is wrong. You're a bad leader because you're making them feel they have to do that or they're the wrong person. Because mm-hmm. no, I- they don't have the confidence in their own ability and you hired the wrong person. No, I love it's it. It's one or the
0: other. The, it has has leadership come been something that's come easy to you, or is this just again a skill set you've learned over time, just doing it so long? Like be, even back when you were back in uh, you know in in Albany or in Washington, was this just things that came natural to you? Because you probably again I would think have some leadership, even though you might have been on staff, you probably had a leadership over either employees or you had some pull. somewhere. It's, it's
1: funny, but I I I'm a I've come to believe that few things in life prepare you more for all sorts of roles in life as political work. And I would recommend that to young people. Go do an internship. Do a time for a couple of years as a staffer in a political office somewhere. You know, the pay is going to be crap until you get to be up at the high levels of, of staff work. Don't worry about that. Spend some time in Washington. Spend some time in Albany. Uh, be uh, be part of that, dy- that political dynamic, uh, including campaign activity for a candidate of your choice, uh, and you're going to learn a heck of a lot out of that. That's going to you're going to find all kinds of applications to everything else you do in life. It's a it's a great training ground. That's why I hired it, Joel.
0: Yeah, it, well, Joel came on. I, I absolutely love Joel. I think he's. uh I went and
1: recruited him, and then I had to call the congresswoman and say sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I want you to know before you hear it, otherwise, what I just did. Sorry about that. And she she was fine. She was happy that he was he was going to go on to do something that he wanted to do. But uh, yeah, that's why I reached out to Joel. I saw. I saw a political staff person doing... I have great respect for political staff work. Political staff work is one of the finest professions that anybody can engage in. And it's complex, and it's demanding, and it's strategic. And get involved in it and learn how to do it well. It's going to serve you very well. Most political staff work I I see, is it just makes me... I want to bite my tongue because I just want to say something. I want to say, young man, that's not how you should be representing your boss. Mm-hmm. And I have occasionally through the years, I haven't been able to keep myself from pulling somebody aside and saying, listen, I want to advise you. The way you're conducting yourself here is not good political staff work.
0: And that just might be their the mannerisms or the way they carry themselves at events. No. Or, okay. Yeah. No. And it, it's, uh, yeah. You, I, want,
1: you want to know what, the, what the, the job of a political staff person is. I'm going to, I'm going to oversimplify it. But I used to do this in the congressman's office when you had a new staff person. And it didn't matter if they were going to be the receptionist or a legislative director or what it was. What do you think your job is? Oh, my job is to help constituents with their problem. My job is to help the congressman write legislation. No. Your job is to make people happy with the boss. Yeah, That's political staff work. and But what it takes to do that requires... Requires a lot of skill and finesse, and uh, I I don't see it done well as often as I would like. And I see a lot of it because I interact with so many political offices. But when I see it, I have great respect. Doesn't matter party. I have great respect for good political staff work because it involves good strategy, and involves good planning, and involves good management, and involves leadership. Whether they're in a perceived leadership role or not, they're leading the way in in uh, in the work of their boss. Do most
0: political strategists? You you don't necessarily because and again I'm not I'm far removed from that world but you don't necessarily have to be a part of that party or part of that because I um like if if you work for a congressperson or a senate um is that someone that you would have the same I guess values or visions or beliefs as or is it a lot of times maybe not but you still work for that person I
1: think you need to up to a point but then you need to in the course of doing political staff work, you, you, you need to know that you're representing them, not the other way around. And so there are times when maybe you're having to, uh, to work on an issue and it's not what you would do if you were the congressman or you were the senator. Well, you're not the congressman or the senator. It's their position. So you do need, uh, like a good diplomat does, uh, you need to... to Tell the story and advocate for their position, not what necessarily is your position. Now there can come a point where, you know, that you're 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 so um, divorced for the positions of who you work with, and you may not feel like you want to do that anymore. But you're never going to be a hundred. You're never going to be a hundred percent agreement with anybody you work with. I yeah. don't care if they're an elected official or you know a boss at a manufacturing plant. So um, you, you always have to have to do what the boss wants.
0: Um, so. I I still consider myself a, a young professional. I'm I'm now in my 30s, but the idea of what what
1: that makes me an old codger.
0: <laughs> so, what, what is uh? No, which
1: notice, listeners, he didn't disagree with that.
0: I, I, I you said it, not me. So, well, um, but the the idea of uh, my two questions is, what role do you know, young professionals play. And then what should a young professional do moving forward in this area? So again, I, you know, I have a lot of good friends that are part of like Adirondack young professionals. And I know I'm I'm a big believer in, uh, my, my favorite quote is rising tide raises all ships. And I really am a firm believer at the, at my peers from like an age perspective, you know, give or take five, 10 years. I really try to help promote, support their vision, their goal. It could be a little Like today I went and got coffee at this girl just started this little, um, tra- uh, I don't want to say trailer, camper, coffee shop in a camper. She does a great job. She's a young young girl getting this up and, and running, and I think she's the you know chief cook and bottle washer kind of person. Um, but I look at these young people that are coming up through the reins and knowing myself 10 years ago coming in, it's not always easy to break into a sector, and a lot of it is doing grunt work or doing things that – aren't very sexy to try to get to a level where you, like you said, you have a little bit more influence or a little bit more power. Um, But to try to help these me almost being like a mentor now where 10 years ago, I was definitely the mentee and learning. um, What is your, you know, idea of, you know, a young professional coming in, maybe, you know, in college or coming out of college and what role do they play going forward and kind of a vision that you've set for the community and what role can they play knowing that they eventually, you know, when the changing of the guard and, and, just, you know, time to overtakes, you know, people retire and, and you know, kids, my age or, or young professionals, my age now become, you know, kind of the movers and shakers in the community where right now we still have a good, you know, reach to the people that uh, have been there.
1: Position yourself to, if you hanker for a more leadership position, you're not satisfied. It's perfectly okay to be satisfied with job. Isn't the most important thing in your life. Other things are, and so the job is just means to an end. But if you're one of those people that's more leadership oriented and and you hanker more for the achievement and the the challenge uh, and want that kind of leadership in the business community, um, develop your personal power. I really don't think it's any great big secret. And it's, it's, it's some of the things I've mentioned. Make yourself a powerful person. Figure out how you do those things to make yourself perceived as more of an expert and always develop and hone and then show off that expertise. That's okay. Uh, those relationships, always be networking and building those relationships. Um, always be doing those things. Think of ways, I think there are other little tricks that I'm a, I'm a believer in, and I won't say how I do these things, but I think when I say this, you're going to know uh, some of the ways that, that I've done this. Think of some things that will also help personally brand you. What are some things you say all the time that then become identified? Oh, he, you know, he always says, uh, think of that story that you tell really well um, at events and, and tell it really well and be known for that. Um, maybe it's the, think of the way you dress. Think of the way, you know, brand yourself, develop a brand. Mm-hmm. That, that has a power too because it makes you remembered. Um, and and it, it then identifies with the expertise and the relationship and those things but it adds more remembrance of that in people's minds because you've created a memorable brand around your person.
0: Well, I think when I, when I look at you and actually had this down, I had a, the actual quote I had was "suit game" because I mean you're always someone that when I first think of you know Gary Douglas, I think the chamber, but you always think. You're, I mean, I would say every room you're in, you're the top one or two best dressed people in, in in the room. But I don't think that's by. I mean, I would think that's a little bit by design. That that's something you have focused on over the years where you know, when you talk about a dress or the way you carry yourself. I also think that you're probably a hell of a poker player because I think that like you said you keep your cards close to your chest at times, but I think you could be, you know, and I don't know you that well, but my perception of you is that you're someone that's very calculated, someone that's, um, very goal oriented and very strategic. And I think that, you know, maybe you aren't the most vocal person in the room, but I think you carry a lot of weight and a lot of presence, um, just by your presence alone and that's some. at least that's my impression of you if i see you at an event even you may not say anything may not do much more than you know talk to a couple people here and there but i I can feel your presence as you know that that's a major that's a major player in this room right now versus you know and again me i look at the beginning of my career to now i certainly carry more um i guess more weight power whatever you want to call it than i did 10 years ago i have way more connections i have way more i try to be a connector in the community i try to you know especially with my group of you know young professionals and trying to branch there's a reason i do the podcast i've been 112 episodes and mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of people on the podcast the first time i've had a you're branding
1: yourself so, you're the podcast guy that's podcast a, guy there you that's go that's a that's a brand that's yeah, part and, of your personal brand.
0: And, and I think, and it, for me, it was it starting the podcast was just a way to branch. I like the idea of podcasts. I listen to podcasts It's a way to meet people. But then as I've gone along, it's it's a way to introduce someone that may not know you in a long form conversation and get your message out to other people that, again, maybe have heard you on certain things. I mean, I watched a couple of your Mountain Lake, is uh, it Mountain Lake Journal, they call it, where it's a little bit longer form. But you can really see it more than, because I find that you a lot of times are, a quote in the paper or a, a quick little 30 second snippet on the news where some people don't get to see, you know, a very, unless you're in meetings with you, get to see a lot of, you know, you as a person or your mindset or strategy behind things. And, um, from, a- well, that's
1: also a communication skill that comes out of politics, which is knowing, knowing how to, how to create quotables. Okay. Yeah. any Anytime you write something or anytime you speak, you may have a body of your narrative you want to get to, but you want to provide what's going to be the quote.
0: And is that something you focus on? Yes. So that there's, that you have strategy. It's going in to, my
1: head naturally when I speak, but it also very, even more forthrightly when I, when I'm writing a press release or a statement, Struct, it, structuring that in a way. So you, you give the quote that, that you want you, that contains what you want most to be quoted, the focus and, and make it clear that, over you know, they're not going to not quote this line because you've made it interesting.
0: Um, yeah, the, I, I just like I said, I think there, you have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, skill sets. I think that you've just built up over time, but I think that a lot of it is is done like you just mentioned. And there, there are
1: things, there are things I'm not good at. I'm not a social person. Mm-hmm. I never have been. I'm actually, I'm actually a, a very uh, a, a inward person. I, I'm I, nothing. Uh, uh, just to create a little contrast, nothing makes me more uncomfortable in this world. Than being in a cocktail or a party setting with people where you're supposed to kind of network and chit chat, I am so paralyzed and uncomfortable in that. That's not me. Mm-hmm. Put me at a podium in front of six thousand people, and that's fine. Nothing. That's nothing. So, so, <laughs> you know, so, I have things I'm not good at. So when you go, when again, the chamber of commerce every
0: every month is an, is the after hours. I mean, that is something that's I'm not,
1: terrible at that, but I have other staff that are very good at it.
0: I was going to say you got the Jodies and the Christies, and yeah. uh, well, I mean, you did have Jody and um do you you, you go to the, some of those right or do you go to all of them i, I can't remember i, I mean sometimes I, I, sometimes I go
1: I and i have to say uh and people may think it's for the wrong reasons at times through the years but i kind of hang around the check-in table and i say hi to people when they come in and i leave when i can because i am extremely uncomfortable,
0: uncomfortable. what about doing this podcast this is okay this doesn't
1: bother me at all because
0: you you jumped i mean you got back to me very quickly on it and and Again, the decision making—I like, gave you kind of a couple options, and you're like, "Nope, today perfect." So I was yep. like, "Great, I, li- I like it." Um, so, like the okay, the, like the Chamber Award dinner—I mean, you went up, you were on the podium. That was so—that was your comfort zone being perfect on the podium, comfort, and then but, uh, the mingling and stuff is like the kind of the stuff that you're just like, eh, I'm, I'm good," you know, just kind of like get to the get to the awards, get to the meeting. And I always
1: plan my speaking in my head. I sketch it out. I never write it verbatim. I've never read anything verbatim. I hate that. Mm-hmm. I'll sketch out, you know, uh, how I'm going to start it, Uh, whether it's with a joke or whether it's with a story. I think either or sometimes a combination of the two of those are a great tool for public speaking to command attention and set you apart from kind of the standard PowerPoint presentation Mm -hmm. or something. Um, And then the key points I want to make, and I sketch them out in an outline kind of way, and I look at that again typically I like to look at that again just before I'm going to speak and I will make changes. So then I'll, I'll, I'll scribble on it and I'll cross that off and I'll even think sometimes there at the table I'll see somebody there in the room and I'll say, oh, I just thought of a good joke. I'll make, I'll make, I'll make some fun of, of Matt. And let me put that in there instead of this. Uh, but then when I get to the podium and I always like a podium, I push that aside and I just wing it and it just is all in my head. And, and sometimes sometimes I'm, I, I, I get very off the cuff. When, when I'm really in my comfort zone speaking i will i will get even get off that outline okay but i also know at the end i know when i've done very well and i also know when i'm very unhappy i don't need any i don't need any feedback from anybody i know that oh i was that i was clunky i was i that didn't go that didn't go well
0: um (laughs) no i i yeah so i i uh I haven't given many speeches. I used to coach sports, so I'd have to get up in like, you know, kind of the banquet, sports banquet and talk. And that was always kind of nerve wracking. And then as I've gotten, you know, in sports helped me speak in front of crowds because you have, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 kids. Um, at the time, it was, um, you know, mostly 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds that you're speaking in front of. And, you know, you can kind of command that kind of audience and then you go into, you know, I haven't had to do major speeches. I've done some presentations and stuff and it's always... Um, same way I, I'm a jot. I jot down some notes. Um, when I, you know, we had to give the speech at the uh, uh, the awards last year. I didn't write anything down. That was completely. I think I actually looked, watched the. There was a video someone posted. I think it was the chamber, and I remember looking down, and I never re- it looked like I was reading stuff. I never. Look, I was <laughs> reading the actual. I was just looking down at the award because it was kind of you know. Was, and again, I thank you for that because that was uh You're you know the chamber. I thought and it's hanging up over there, and I I, I think I said that it was the. I think the most meaningful award I've ever gotten in my life from anything because I think it has it speaks to something that I'm pretty passionate about as I've gotten it. You know, as you get older, you f- you find what you really like to do in life and you find out what you're passionate about. And I think, um, you know, getting an award like that, which, I mean, I, I, you know, kind of shame on me, but I remember when I was told that I was going to get it, I, Jody had called me and I asked Jody, what is it? Because I had never been to the award banquet. And Part of the reason I was planning on going the year prior, and I didn't even know they gave awards out. And the year prior, I was just going to go because I'm like, yeah, I'll go to the chamber. It was my wife's birthday, so I made the, the smart decision not to go. And, and you know, I think we went out to dinner or something that night. But, um, you know, to really kind of look at what the, the award meant, and then I'm kind of like, you know, that is very cool. Because, again, I'm not a very, you know, pat on the back and stuff do make me uncomfortable because I'm kind of like the process. of like just working hard and, and accomplishing things. But... To sit back and know what it means, and to see that people recognize the work that you do, um, you know that I may not see that gets that gets noticed, but that it gets noticed. Then I'm like, okay, that is kind of cool that people, you know, do think that I'm doing the right thing, which does give you a little more more motivation to keep mm-hmm. going because it gives you some affirmative of like, okay, this is I'm doing the right stuff, and the people that I would, you know, that I value, I would say, value their opinion or insight are also saying, Hey, we do recognize that you're doing, you know, a job that we would recognize as doing well. Um, that's the kind of stuff that, and is, that's why it's
1: done is to recognize excellence. But, uh, you know, beyond that is to set up examples. Yeah. And to identify it, examples.
0: Yeah. And, and I, like I say, there, it, it, it just, having seen the whole process and knowing, you know, how many people that I think are doing a good job and to be kind of, you know, you know, uh, highlighted out of that group is something that i i didn't take lightly that i was looking at it's like you know i take that as a responsibility to keep doing what i'm doing but also kind of help lead the charge in my s- sphere of friends and i know a lot of young people do look up to me um not not real estate real estate's a thing i do but i think more from the mindset and i think more of like you know the like, like the local matters thing we that was a tagline we came up came up with but when i look at my what thir- i just turned thirty one so my basically a 50 year goal does a lot with local matters. And again, I'm kind of one that I think out in broad terms and themes and I break it back down to smaller, you know, yearly three year goals, five year goals where I can put metrics on it. But the, you know, the, the 20, 30 year goals that there's general themes to it, which is probably something I think you would agree on that you have a theme of what you want the North country to be. The, the, uh, the people, the places, the locations that, that will figure itself out, but Mm -hmm. it's the general theme that we're working towards. So, Last few questions that I have for you. Um, what is, and again, I'm going to, I had this in Is quot- this
1: where I need to get my tax return out? You, you, <laughs> I, I think you checked it in. Your your oh, your, uh, okay. your
0: your agent gave it to us before you got here. So the, uh, and I had this in quotations. What is a normal day in the life of, you know, of Gary Douglas? And I know I use normal kind of loosely because somebody asked me what's a normal day in real estate. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, here's the, the perfect day, but um, kind of what's the general guideline of like, You get, you know, get to the office before you get the office or like, what's your, what's your day? How do you structure your day and what's your goals for the day? And this could be again, a week, a month, but kind of what's the general theme of each day to you?
1: I spend a considerable amount of time broken up, but collectively uh, scanning news and events and uh, political things and what's going on in Washington, what's going on in Ottawa I have uh, probably about 10 or 12 newspapers I scan every day uh, beyond just, you know, the Press Republican, and the Adirondack Daily Enterprise and the local ones. Um, papers in Washington in London in Ottawa, the Montreal Gazette, uh, looking for intel, looking for articles of interest, uh, sometimes just articles to share because there is a little way of networking with somebody. Mm-hmm. You happen to find something in the Gazette that's of interest to people and you can pass it on to them you know, there's, there's a little something you can do in a, in a very simple way. Uh, but also building that expertise, that awareness. So I spend time doing that. I am a major emailer. Uh, I do almost all communication by email. Uh, I like it. I can fashion my thought by the way. I still structure my emails in more of a letter format than I don't do abbreviations. I don't do any of that stuff. I think the art of letter writing and proper grammar is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm big on emailing, um, so I, I spend a lot of time at the screen uh, emailing and going through my files of emails for someone I haven't heard from in a while that I, I would, would have liked to by now, so it's time to figure out an excuse. Maybe it's forwarding that article from the Gazette or something that gives me an excuse uh, to ping them and say, oh, and by the way, you know, get back to me when you can about whatever. So I spend a lot of time working in that way. I don't spend much time on the phone. I don't like the phone. Um, so I don't do a lot by phone. I prefer emails or in-person meetings. Um, so while this is down, uh, because of the pandemic currently, I normally would be doing a lot of meetings. Mm-hmm. I'd be going to a lot of meetings, but I'd be doing a lot of personal meetings, um, at the office and getting people to come in and meet with me there. Um, and there's a number of reasons why I do that. It's another little secret for folks that want to cultivate things. Always do your meetings on your turf whenever you can. hmm You have greater comfort, and you're hosting the person. They're visiting you rather than going to their office or some third-party place. And then, by the way, make your office something that reinforces the things you want to reinforce about you and your organization. And anybody that's seen my office knows that that does that to the maximum degree. Um, So uh, a lot of meetings, um, a lot of travel, although that's down too. These have been strange times for me. Travel by Nor- car, travel by plane. Normally mobile. I'd be on the road 35,000 miles a year. That's
0: just purely, that's window time driving. Yeah, that's
1: running around the region because when you're doing five plus counties, you got to be visible. We make sure we're going to be a regional chamber. We've got to really be a regional chamber. I make sure that we're working on uh, issues that have to do with Hamilton County, that we're doing something for Tupper Lake this year, uh, that we're working with Malone on some project. I want to make sure that we really are regional and it's not just superficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then part of that means you got to go be there, so you got to go visit those communities and go to things, and uh, almost like a politician, mm-hmm. so I got to be visible to uh, to be seen as the the regional chamber guy, mm-hmm. uh, and that the regional chamber really is our chamber, and they really do care about our issues and our things. Um, now that I'm not gonna, when I was co-chair of the regional council for eight years, it was off the charts the driving I would do. Because you, know, you add those other counties, like Fort I'd be, I'd it, be going yeah. to Watertown, I'd be going to Potsdam all the time. So it's a little less, but still a lot. A lot. Of, I would normally be going, particularly during session, which is underway now, be going up and down to Albany almost once a week. Um, I was there last month. I was able to get a meeting with the governor's office in spite of the Capitol being closed. So I'm not doing that as much, but normally that would be a, a real part of my time would be that. Um, Going down to Washington several times a year, which I'm not doing, but as soon as I can do, I need to be able to do, uh, particularly with uh, the new landscape. I need to curry some relationships with new folks, um, given the transition in things. Mm -hmm. Those are all Montreal. I would normally be going out to Montreal at least once a week uh, for some meeting or some visit to a company or visit one of our partner organizations or... Uh, sit down with a newspaper or do something up there. So in still doing a lot with Montreal on that front. We're just doing it virtually. I'm not doing it in person. So um, that's the same with the others. I'm, it isn't that we're not doing those interactions. I'm just not doing them in person. I still think the personal value, the in-person is important. And I'm anxious to get back to that because it adds power. Mm-hmm. Virtual does not take the place. I don't care. Anybody says, oh, it's a new normal. We're not going to go back to meetings garbage mm-hmm. there's yeah. no, nothing more powerful than a face-to-face meeting and there's no better way you're not building a relationship in a zoom meeting
0: no i there's you too- and i
1: are fashioning a relationship here that's going to be different going forward mm-hmm. than the relationship we had before we did this am i right
0: 100 percent. yeah I'll, I'll get you some coffee now yeah. know
1: that. that does that, that doesn't happen through a zoom meeting yeah so i am in, anxious, your, in your fully i am anxious i am anxious to get back to that and i will and that normally would be a lot of what my activity is like I sometimes say if I'm spending too much time at my desk, I'm not, I'm not doing what I'm best at.
0: Wes, well, so I was just wondering how much, how much time during a day do you normally, are you in the office?
1: In a normal times outside of the pandemic, I would be in my office half the time on the road, okay. half the time. Okay. Although sometimes be weeks, I wouldn't be there at all because I'd be on the road. I'd be in Washington for three days and then going to New York and then stopping in Albany and then coming home.
0: Just kind of make the rounds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then what, what normal time, like what's what's clock in, clock out usually? Or do you not really, is it kind of normal, very sporadic? Are you like an early, get to the office early? Are you kind of like, you kind of.
1: I start work early at home. I get to the office maybe around eight. But if I'm up at six or seven, then I'm I'm doing my emails and mm-hmm. starting to read my, my papers online and doing that early in the morning. Um, and then typically we'll end at the office around five although increasingly there are the, the, zoom meetings being scheduled after work mm-hmm. I decide whether I'm going to do them at the office or do them at home. Uh, but then again, I'll, I'll work in the, I'll always be at my computer doing some work at home in the evenings and on the weekends.
0: And again, it's just the process. She's just like just that grind and working towards yeah. something. And, um,
1: and by well, the way, it's not a burden. I enjoy it. It's what I like doing
0: that. Well, that's what people always ask me. They're like, man, you, you seem like you do a lot of stuff. I'm like, it's fun to me. I, I have more fun coming here and, you know whether it's working on some marketing oh, stuff. Oh, you need right?
1: to work less. Why would I do that?
0: Yeah, That's what I like to do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I find enjoyment in the in the work, and, and that's I, I actually I'm I'm I don't sit, I don't sit still well. And when people say, oh, you should have you watched this uh, this new series on Netflix, I'm like I rewatch The Office if I'm home, and I can barely make it through a movie. I
1: can enjoy occasionally one day off at home in my den and binge watch some British mystery shows on DVDs. And but I can do that for a day. Mm-hmm. After a day, it's I I I got to find out what's going on with that project. I gotta I gotta yeah I, you know I gotta get back to work.
0: What well, do you, do you watch? Are you a movie guy, TV guy? I mean, do you not much TV, movies? Do you read a lot?
1: I spend I, I I'm I'm still a creature of DVDs. I still order them on Amazon. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a great Anglophile. Um I have been. uh I have been at least once, many years, twice uh, to London every year for 41 years until 2020. Wow, okay. Uh, so Fa- real, family or just pure enjoyment? Just pure enjoyment. Okay. Um, I'm a great antique collector. I have been. Uh, I started in auctions and in the antique business when I was about 15, 16, doing antique shows. Um, I still am a, a hopeless collector. I always will be. I sometimes joke he who has the most when the end of the world comes wins. I intend to win. Um, but I'm a particular collector of a number of different eclectic antiques in England. There's a whole series of antique shows I go to typically every October for three weeks. I stay in London and I go out by train up and down to various shows. Uh, some of my best friends in the world are British antique dealers, some of whom I've known wow. for more than 30 years.
0: I've spent in my life a day and a half in London. Absolutely loved it, but it was... it just a whirlwind kind it's of It's
1: my it's my second home. It's it's where I feel it's the only place I care to go to. I when I was younger, I traveled all over the world. I took tours. I went to to China, and Asia, and Africa, and all. I've, I've done all that. I have no interest in any of that anymore. I just want to get to London once a year.
0: So when you do when you guys put out like the uh, the chamber trips, don't, is it trips that kind are of sponsored by yeah. the chamber, mm-hmm. um, do you go on those? No. Okay. But if it, they went to London, would you go to that? No. Okay. I wasn't sure because I'm like, I would go to London if I can go with Gary and just show me around. It's like, <laughs> show me where the good fish and chips are or the pubs or whatever. But I've got
1: my own routine and I am a creature of routine. I have dealers that I've known for decades that I go to. I have restaurants that I've gone, gone to for decades who know me when I come. I have hotels that I've stayed at for many, many years that know me. Oh, Mr. Douglas, good to see you back. I like that. I like the sense that I am in a home environment when I'm there because I've been going so long. I'm mm-hmm. actually known... In the places that I go to,
0: that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Um, and and besides, London, there's no real ties to London besides that. Just that's kind of where your your vibe is. It's not like you know, like you said, you have a connection with like when you first went to Samuel London. Samuel
1: Johnson said, "When a man is tired of London, he's tired of life." Well, I'm not tired of London. I'm not tired of life. <laughs>
0: there you go. Um, so the other question, um, I, I got a few more, but this is onward and upward. When did that tagline happen? Because when you talk about branding yourself, this is something that you even sent in the email back to me you and, got it. I got, and I, I got you. fired up. I said, like I said, every time I see onward and upward, I get fired up when I see it because I'm just like, I I just like the positive. Are you, are you an optimist, a yes. general
1: optimist? Absolutely.
0: So every time I read that, cause I'm, I'm a very optimistic person. If you told me this cup had a little bit of water, I'd probably prove you that, or I'd try to try to talk to him, uh, was it blue or purple in the face that it was over 50% full, but, um, so was that just something you can't purely Bad news
1: from? is always an opportunity to do something good. Challenges are always an opportunity to advance. Always. The power is in you. And failure needs to not be an option. And optimism is a force multiplier. I also believe, you know, say, Oh, you know, there's some sometimes when there isn't reason to be optimism. Optimism as, as a force multiplier, as a source of power, mm-hmm. needs to be an intellectual choice. You choose to be optimistic. It is not a calculation. If it's a calculation, you're not an optimistic person. Well, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to put, here's, the, here's the pros. Here's the, I'm going to decide if I should be optimistic. Mm-hmm. No, you approach everything with optimism. You know what else op- optimism and positivity does? It gathers people toward you. You want to be a leader? Mm-hmm. Be positive. Be optimistic. People want to, be, want to feel good about whatever it is they're engaging in or doing. And and the ones that start that oh we got this terrible challenge. Oh, I don't know if we can get out of this. If you start something that way, you're already you're already climbing uphill.
0: I, I think that's I think that's one of the things that one of the things that I've benefited from that's come natural to me is I'm positive and I think like you said, I the last few years when I've really put myself out there, the people that I've that have gravitated towards me and me to them well i'm sure it comes is,
1: apart from your dad because he's always a very positive upbeat he's person. pretty chipper yeah he's always yeah. been
0: kind of a chipper guy so oh. I, I think uh i think a lot of it is is like i said a glass i'm a glass half full always seeing optimism you know if there's a if there's a challenge i'm like okay how can we grow and make this turn this into a positive and um, i just love it every time i see onward and upward i get fired you, you know the strictly business every month you know whether it be a you know something that you just send out or a press release. I always see it or the, the vision, the monthly vision magazines. Um, I, I, I think this is kind of premium. Well, what, what it so far when I say, uh, this is kind of probably too hard to answer, but, um, or maybe very easy to answer proudest accomplishment to date, you know, at least from the work with the chamber.
1: I think building the chamber that we've built over the last 29 years, um, with a lot of help, uh, starting with folks like your father and coming through the years. A, a lot of great uh, staff that have worked with me, a lot of great uh, board leadership. Uh, so it isn't necessarily personal. It's, it's, I have a personal part in it, with a lot of other people I hope share in the pride. But uh, we we took a chamber in 1992. There was a disaster. Um, it was bankrupt. It had just been through a major embezzlement uh, it had no budget. Nobody could figure out what the finances were. I had to go through a whole first year of bills coming in unexpectedly and and wondering if there was revenue or not before we could do a whole year and figure out what the finances really were because there were no finances to wow. going into it. Um, it was a chamber that was starting to morph from what it was to what it needed to be, what the business community needed it to be. It was starting to morph from the kind of Plattsburgh Community Chamber that was about events um, and things like um, uh, the, the Oktoberfest and other things that I've heard about. not anything wrong with those things, but that's one kind of chamber. And starting to be about business services. It had just, under my predecessor, started its first Government Affairs Committee, so it was just starting with the notion that maybe we should be taking issues and paying attention to government matters. It started, uh, because Mark Berry wanted it, the Can-Am Connection Council to start putting the chamber into looking at something a little more strategic and, and bigger than running an event, but wasn't there yet, and, and still had a big focus on Plattsburgh Air Force Base and supporting Plattsburgh Air Force Base. Everything in this community was centered, number one, on support in one way or another for Plattsburgh Air Force Base. It was the heart of the community. I learned that very quickly. Uh, If I had gone to a lot of other communities, they would have said, now as as president of the chamber, uh, these are the organizations you need to belong to. These are the things that it's important for you. This is where you're going to meet the people and interact with the people you need to interact with. You need to be in this club. You need to be in this arts organization. You need to be part of the Opera Guild or or whatever. No, here it was all the Air Force Base Liaison Committee. End. Period. Exclamation point. Um, That was the heart and soul of the leadership in the community generally you know, gathered and interacted and where you would interact with them. Um, but building that after the failure of, plat- of keeping Plattsburgh Air Force Base open into the regional chamber and the power organization it is now and the impact that has in small and sometimes greater ways each and every day on behalf of this region, that's what I'm proud of. So it's not, it's not just a lot of individual projects and mm-hmm. accomplishments, but it's more of having created a structure that makes so much else possible.
0: Um. I mean, to follow up on that. And of
1: hiring and motivating the team that I have.
0: Yeah, well, the, and I think the next one you kind of answered it. I said, like, I actually, my next two questions. What, what was your next plan in life? And you just told me you're you're doing this until it doesn't become fun anymore. So I think that would that probably answers that question. I,
1: I am the Joe Bornstein of the world of chambers. They will carry me out someday. Okay, okay. And when when I then I also put,
0: what legacy do you want to leave? But again, I mean, I think you're you're, you're still well into the building that legacy. Do you think it, the legacy would be someone again from taking it from?
1: I always think the best is yet to come.
0: Beautiful, I love it. And if you
1: believe the best is yet to come, then you got you got mountains to climb and things to do.
0: So we can say onward and upward.
1: Onward and upward. You're never at that point where okay, well that's done well done, you know, time to move on. I can't can't ever see that because there's always more and bigger things you can do. I mean, right, it it can be the things that come out of left field like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can also be a a lot of, but there will always be things that you foresee that you're working towards. And then there's the events that come that can knock you sideways. But at the same time, how do you turn those events into something that you can build positively on, like the closure of Plattsburgh Air Force Base? How do you convert that into opportunities to reinvent the economy and to make it even even greater than it was,
0: yeah. Not not that you ever want to see those, but when you do, when those do happen, though, those fire you up. Those are like perfect. Give me that challenge. Like that's something that you're like, bring it on. Because you have...
1: you have to see the opportunities in it. That's the yeah. optimism. Mm-hmm. You have to see the something like that happens. It does provide opportunities. It, it, never, and I, I've said this before. Never waste failure. But I'm going to say that again. Never waste failure. Failure is powerful. It provides unique opportunities to rethink, to re-strategize, to reorient, um, to re-plan, to re-envision, to do things that you never would have done but for the failure because we don't need to do that. We've got to focus on this that we're working on to not fail. Well, the failure of Plattsburgh Air Force Base did suddenly provide an opportunity to rethink and to re-envision it wasn't it wasn't even it wasn't easy it wasn't with 100 percent consensus you know that had to come over time but it provided that opportunity in the chamber Uh, i'm very proud of the work the chamber has played in grasping that opportunity as we have at other key occasions you know to to take failure and look for the opportunities inherent in failure every failure has opportunities
0: i love it um Gary, thank you so much for coming on. Like I, I wanna I, I want to respect the time I, I, we um, that we have here. But so I, now
1: I have one more question. Where where do you cast the pods? Where,
0: so, um, I, so <laughs> the thing you told me before you get on, you have no cell phone, which I actually that's part of me is I I I, uh, I envy that a little bit. That like when your day ends, you go home and second. Like, I don't carry
1: gonna, a cell phone. I have a cell phone at the office that I use only if I'm like going to Albany or I'm going to be on the road, and then. I don't know how to answer it. Nobody's ever called me on it. I don't use it as a phone. I use it to check my emails.
0: Okay. Is it an iPhone? I don't know. Okay. I mean, it's not like a flip phone. I don't know.
1: It's it's a it's a it's a phone. Okay. I don't know. No, that's fine because you
0: said you're, you said you've never sent a text in your life. But I said, but at least it's enough where you like I said the the email good. I do emails can, on it. Um. So, where the podcast is located? Um. Uh, there's a. I can. I'll email you the link. And then you can go on and watch it on Podbean. I was going to say you can get it on Apple. Well, I've
1: done it online. I mean, I, I listened to a few of your podcasts so it, in the you're, last, you're, last week. Just going, I just all I had to do was Google your name podcast, and I, you know, there's enough that showed up. So
0: because um, you're on LinkedIn,
1: yes, right? You're pretty active. on I do LinkedIn. use LinkedIn a lot. So I don't use social media really other than LinkedIn, but I find LinkedIn. Very valuable. For, I find LinkedIn very valuable for making those connections mm-hmm. that you want to make. I can. There's. I want to connect with the president of a company that I've heard something about. I find LinkedIn. I can figure out some way that I can get to that person.
0: So the podcast will be put on LinkedIn. Okay. So if you if that's the easiest way, you may be able to just click on that and go. But other than that, I can I can send you the email. But it Podbean is the hosting site, but it goes out to you know, Apple, Spotify, it goes out to, you know, it goes on YouTube. It goes on all these places that people can listen. But, um, if you go on LinkedIn and click on it, it'll take you a link to Podbean. And if you've already listened to a couple, you'll be able to hear yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Well, I do have a pod in my basement, but I'm afraid to touch it.
0: <laughs> <You> growing. No. <laughs> so, um, well, Gary, I really appreciate you coming on. Like I said, out uh, of, you know, a lot of the people that I've wanted to come on, I have a, you know, a list of people that I, I go through in my phone, but it's my notes that I kind of go through and, You've been on that list for many, many, many months and probably well over a year now. This is, um, well, now, I'm happy
1: we can do it, and I hope I didn't drone on too long. No, you were great. That was perfect. Like okay. I said,
0: you, the good thing was people always ask, like, what I'm nervous about coming on. or I, I always tell people, as long as you can talk, and most of the stuff we're going to talk about is stuff that you know what you're, you're talking about. Like you said, you're, you don't really have to prepare for it because you prepare for it every day. So it's, I'm not going to ask you about, I, I don't know, like deep sea fishing or something if you're not into that or golfing. If, do you golf? No, okay. So, like, I would have asked you about golf. I've like, been fine. You would have just cut it down and said onto something nope, different. Never had a club in my hand. That's that's fine. The, uh, the your tournament every year is a great tournament. Yes, it is. A lot so of people enjoy that. We we have a lot of fun with that. So, um, I think this year we probably had a little too much fun, but I think we were pent up from uh, so many months of not seeing people. So it was fun to get out and, and socialize a little bit. So, um, but Gary, thank you so much. I like I said, I, I you're someone that I do um, pay attention to and emulate or want to emulate, I guess, you know, going forward and kind of. Uh, you know, I take a lot of what you do and, and your presence and your vision, and it definitely has an influence on me. And I know a lot of, you know, I think young, young professionals definitely know, you know, know your name and know, like I said, the positive impact that you've had. And I, you know, hopefully, like I said, I'll, we'll be seeing you around for many more years and you know, it, I'll be around. So I'm sure I'll bug you. So at they're some not point. wondering
1: when that old fogey going to get out of the way.
0: I, I, I hope <laughs> not. I, I hope not. And, and like I said, if I'm, uh, you know, rolling up on you and asking you crazy questions, like get, getting you a uh, green suits and stuff that you won't be, uh, Completely ready to just punch me in the face. but that's, I have that's, a very
1: good tailor in Montreal, if you ever want his name.
0: I, then I'll I, I will, I'll figure that out. I'll get that. All right. I'll send it up, and he'll, okay. he'll send it down special. So, Gary, thank you so much. Um, okay, my pleasure. It was Onward great. and upward. Beautiful. Episode 112 of the Galen Trombley Show. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G A E. L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.